This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And today we are talking about the latest album from Trivium, In the Court of the Dragon, released last year, 2021. Um, which you'll recall, not last episode, because that was a backstage pass, but the episode before that on episode three, uh, or track three of this volume. I never get our own nomenclature right. Me neither. Um, is, uh, I picked this one because Trivium is a band that I've been aware of for a long time, and I've always kind of felt, oh, I should listen to them properly sometime and, you know, see if they're a band for me, because they sound like they might be, but I just never have. Um, And then when I was, so I was thinking we should do them for this show, but then when I was looking around at what they've released, my instinct was to go back to, you know, something that's regarded as their early peak. Sure. You know, a sort of early classic, their equivalent of Ride the Lightning or something. Um, And we almost did that, except as I was reading, I then came across this album and I was like, oh shit, this album literally gets 10 out of 10 from some reviewers. Like, so pretty what much was the album says, that you almost did? Well, I, uh, I can't was it Ascendancy? It, it might have been, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but then, yeah, as I say, I read the reviews of this album and... Yeah, it is Ascendancy. I just saw the cover art. Yeah, that was the one I was going to do because that's regarded as kind of their breakout, you know, the album that launched them onto the scene. But then, as I say, I read the reviews of this album and I was like, oh, actually, pretty much everybody agrees that this is one of their best albums and a sort of, you know, quote unquote, return to form. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, fuck it. Let's why not do, you know, a modern album from a now relatively old band? I mean, they've been going like 22 years. Um so yeah, you know, that that's why I chose the if anybody's wondering, that's why I chose this album. I thought it'd be interesting cuz you've done sort of the respect your elders thing in the past. Where yes. we've done, you know, new albums by old bands and I thought it'd be interesting to do that for a band that isn't quite as old as some of them. You know, is still regarded as a well, actually that I say still regarded in my mind. <laughs> I think of Trivium still as a relatively new band, but of course they're not at all. But they're just right. not as old as a band like say Saxon. Yes. And what's interesting about that, right, is I think they were formed in 1999. So the first album came out in, in 2003. So approaching two decades of putting albums out, mm. but um, have been around for more than 20 years. So yes, for for many of our listeners, this is a, dare I say, like an old school yeah. <laughs> you know, a band for some of them. But you're absolutely right. Like, in my mind, this band is new. And I came to them largely through this album that we're going to talk about today. Oh, okay, that's interesting. And and I've tried to figure out why, because I, you know, we talk about some of these bands, um, you know, Gojira being another band uh, that is, of course, immensely popular now and things like that. And I kept thinking to myself, like, why, why do I have these huge blind spots for some of these bands? Was it that I lumped them into a genre of music that I thought they were a part of that I wasn't super into or whatever it was? And, and what I kind of was reflecting on putting thoughts together for this episode is really it it comes down to was i in a period of discovery in my music fandom or was i in a period of kind of status quo mm. and i think for me what i've kind of realized is that there's two sort of great periods of discovery in my music listening lifetime and the first one, as which, which will surprise no one, is basically like 1981 to 1992. It is the dawn of MTV in 81. 
through my graduating high school in 92. That that's, period of time. That's way broader than I thought. I thought you were going to say well, like the summer of 1988. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to narrow it down in a second. So that that is sort of the the uh, foundational decade of my you know musical sort of fandom there. But 86 to 92, that six year period was middle school and high school, and that to me is really the the sort of um, most. Peak discovery. Peak discovery time, right? This was a time where I was being introduced to new music and, and music I, I had not known about, like, daily. I was literally buying cassettes from people in the hallway at school as I was, you know, becoming a metalhead and and stuff like that. It was I was buying my first, you know, jean jacket and putting the ACDC patch on the back of it. And that was all during, you know, middle school. And by the time I got to high school, I then, because I had a part-time job by that time, I had the money to buy uh, between myself and a, and a good friend of mine. We bought everything that came out every single week. And so that was just an intense period of discovery. When I graduate high school and go to college, I was discovering life. And so I wasn't as, I wasn't paying as close attention to like what was coming out. And, and I certainly wasn't working in a grocery store next to the music store where I could go over and buy everything that sort of came out. I was a college kid. I had no money. I went from having discretionary funds to having nothing um, during the time that I was in college. And so there was that whole period of time for, for more than a decade where I was not in like a, an era of discovery. Yeah. And then really, to be honest, it was when we started this show, slightly before, because I had started doing like a blog series back in 2014 about um, music, and and it was kind of an homage to a show called Friday Night Videos that was out here. But I was doing this blog series where I was like revisiting old videos and stuff like that. But really, when we started doing Thrash It Out in 2015, um, that was the second era of great discovery for me because it's really been since that time over the past seven years now, which is wild to think about that I've been really dialed back in to what's new and what's happening. And of course, so many of our listeners like sharing their bands and their, you know, their picks and their influences and all that kind of stuff. And so it's just been like, second only to my time in high school of like a period of discovery for me. And so th- to go back to the Trivium thing, like, you know, Trivium comes out uh, 2003 with their first album. That was not a period of time where I was, you know, I- in an era of discovery. I was going to OzFest and things like that, which I'm sure I must have seen them at one of the OzFest shows, at least on the second stage at some point in time. But I wasn't really discovering a lot of new music at that time i was really you know listening to all the stuff i had grown up with to that point yeah i I mean i would say yeah similar sort of story here 2003 i think actually probably was a period of some discovery for me because that was when i was occasionally freelancing for metal hammer Mm -hmm. um so, you know, naturally you can't help. You're sitting in the offices, you know, people are playing new new records and uh, new releases and new bands and whatever. You can't help but be exposed to stuff. I don't actually remember Trivium coming up in the conversation during that time. Um, but then it would have been 2003, as you say, was their first album, which wasn't a breakthrough. So maybe they did and I've just, you know, forgotten. Um, but yeah, similar kind of thing. Yeah, I think we all go through those periods of discovery and then consolidation and what have you. Uh, but the same as you in that 
the this show has helped me discover more new music probably than at any time in the previous 10 years i would say before we started it for sure or new metal anyway um that's actually a really good i'm going to take a quick pause from this line of thought but i'm going to come back to it just to go through a few bits of follow-up one of which is here's another milestone for you this is our 75th episode that's crazy it really is isn't it yeah seven years 75 episodes um just like wow (laughs) and that i was actually going to ask you like how many episodes totally have we done but 75 feels perfect yeah Uh, yeah nice round number um we have a couple of new patrons since the last episode as well that i want to give shout outs to one of them is nutty dave i suspect that's somebody from the uk uh hello nutty dave and you and kelly who is a returning patron um so thanks for that because you know we know that people's circumstances change your finances change and what have you uh he had to drop off a while ago but he's he's come back again so thank you both um you know we appreciate your support if anybody else out there isn't a supporter yet and you want to help keep the show going uh, go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and make your pledge uh and yeah we, we really appreciate your support and of course you get to take part in things like the backstage pass episode that we did last time and the listeners poll and the the encore episodes and all of that um and then finally last bit of follow-up um there's an author here in the uk i don't know how well known he is outside the uk his name is christopher brookmeyer he does sort of darkly comic novels and uh, a lot of crime stuff as well uh and he, over here he's very well known he's you know critically acclaimed he sells very well uh, he's also a lovely guy i've met him at festivals and and stuff um his son is a metaller and has produced a YouTube video series called A Rough Guide to Metal Subgenres, which Chris told me about when I met him at an event a couple of months ago. And he That's said, awesome. oh, you should, you should check this out, because I think uh, Jack, I think his, name, his son's name is, would really, you know, would really appreciate you sort of, uh, you know, watching it. And it's great. It's really great. Like, he's very young, and so there are a couple of, especially the older parts of the history where I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure if that's right, but it is really entertaining, really well produced and actually very knowledgeable. Like I say, a few things aside, nevertheless, you know, overall, he's really done his research and he clearly knows his stuff. Um, I'm not going to try and read out a YouTube URL on the show. <laughs> that would be silly, but I will put it in the show notes and I recommend uh, there's at least nine parts to it so far. And I recommend that every, if you're a listener of this show, I am almost certain that you will enjoy that series because like I say, it's, it's knowledgeable, but also entertaining. He's a very, very funny guy. Um, and a a very good video editor as well. So yeah, go and check that out. I will definitely check that out because I get nerdy about that stuff and I love to sort of see what other people's, cause I also feel like when it comes to genres, there's a lot of stuff that's open to interpretation or people have different thoughts on. And so I've, you know, I even, even like with a band like Trivium, right? Like I, I was like, are, did they fit into new metal at one point? Like, I'm not good with the whole genre thing. Like I know, I know hair metal, you know, and, uh, and I would say old school thrash metal, but you could even define thrash metal in a lot of different ways as well. And so I always like to see other people's interpretations of those things and so yeah i don't get too much uh, i'm not too much of a stickler on the on the smaller details you know 
Yeah, I mean, you should see the YouTube comments. Uh, oh my god! <laughs> on I the can videos. only imagine. Yeah, <laughs> they are full of that sort of argument. But yeah, a lot of the, um actuallys. Yeah, but the good thing is that even though he's you know sort of talking about the subgenres, a lot of it is just basically talking about the bands and saying, "Hey, this band are great," you know, um, or this band did that, you know, potted histories of bands and what have you. Uh, and he also sets out his stall really early on, like right at the start. Um, saying, look, you know, this is how I see it. This is how I classify things. You may be, do it differently or whatever, but, you know, but this is how I classify it and therefore how I'm going to do this video series. So he does kind of give himself caveats. Yeah. Um, but as I say, yeah, it's just really well done. And like I say, above all, really entertaining. Like I laughed so much uh, watching the whole thing. You know, it's like interesting, obviously, if you're a metalhead, but also, yeah, just a really good watch. Yeah, and, and, and a celebration of music, right? And so someone totally, spending yeah. their time putting together that type of content for people, I think, is really kind of cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, he clearly loves it. And I, as I say, I just love the fact that, yeah, his dad is, you know, a celebrated novelist. <laughs> and like, and here's his son, who's this apparently extreme metalhead. <laughs> That's awesome. It's great. Um, anyway, so what I wanted to circle back round to was you mentioned... Uh, you're talking about discovery. And one of the things you mentioned was like buying tapes off kids at school. Now, I don't think I ever did that. I don't think I ever bought them, but I definitely used to give tapes to friends and receive tapes from friends, you know, of albums they'd recorded. I mean, there's mixtapes obviously, but even just, Hey, this is a band you should check out. You know, have you ever heard this band before? No, right. I'll make you a tape. And then the next day they'd come in and give you a tape of, uh, yeah, you know, a Metallica tape or Fields of the Nephilim, I remember. Um, that was, where was I? It was at art college when one of the other students, one of the art students, a guy called Woody, uh, said like, are you into Fields of the Nephilim? And I was like, no, I've never heard of them. And he was like, that he was surprised. He was like, really? Oh, I'm sure you're going to love them. And he brought me a tape. And I knew nothing about this band whatsoever i'd heard the name but i knew nothing and he brought me this tape in of a couple of their albums and i mean it may be a fan for life i'm a huge fan of that band had a massive influence on my music listening my writing you you know everything um but i knew nothing about them and that i don't you know me i'm always wary of sounding like an old man pining for the old days (laughs) but the mystery of like you know, I knew nothing about Trivium going into this episode, and within a week, I now know pretty much everything I there is know. to know about yeah, Trivium. No, I, I get that. There is no mystery, uh, no secrets, no enigma. Um, I could just sit here and know everything and listen to everything. Um, I don't know. It's it's just not. And I like I say, I don't want to say that one is better than the other, but I think sometimes it might be hard for younger listeners to understand just how sparse <laughs> our yeah. information and our listening was how difficult it was to hear new stuff and to find out about these bands i'm gonna join you on as the old man in the in the old man discussion here because i think you're 100 percent right i think that and not just about music but i do feel like we have such access to information today that you can in a day, learn maybe not everything there is to learn about something, but learn so much about one thing in such a short amount of time. And it, it, 
I think sometimes that gets mistaken for like curiosity and wonder and mystery and things like that. And it, because it doesn't allow you time to actually like digest it, it goes back to like the whole like three listen rule, right. Of like an album or something like that, where you mm. hear it and you sit with it and you reflect on it and you absorb it. And it, because everything is so available today, like you just consume it, you know? And it's like, it's like a dog eating their food. Like it's just so easy to consume all of that information. You know what I mean? Whereas like to your point back in the day, um, and I say that I eat like a dog, I consume my food and it's because I have children and where, you know, I didn't have the luxury when they were smaller of like being able to take my time with dinner because, uh, you know, you just had to eat quick. So, um, but going back to that time, like when I was in seventh grade, and this uh, young entrepreneur who was an eighth grader who would sell me tapes at the time would clearly buy the tapes, make a copy for themselves, and then sell the original to me. So I was buying original um, copies at the time. But that's how I got my first Megadeth uh, cassettes. That's how I got my first Metallica cassettes. It's how I got my first Slayer album uh, and also Anthrax. So all of my big four albums came from a kid that I bought them from in the hallways of my middle school. Because at that point in time, I was pretty sure that my parents were not going to, and this was in the time of the whole, like, um, I forget exactly when the explicit lyrics, uh, you know, uh, stickers came out as far as like a parental advisory, stuff like that. But oh, yeah. being a young kid, having gone to Catholic school when I was a, a young kid, like I definitely... Um, had my mother specific, especially was very wary of the imagery and and obviously the the whole um, satanic panic of the eighties, whether it be Dungeons and Dragons or heavy metal music or anything like that. And so, yeah, this was a way for me to get access to whatever music I wanted to explore, you know, at school. And it was very much mystery. And of course, obviously, mixtape as tapes as well, where people would just make tapes for one another and stuff like that. There was a lot of um, wonder and a lot of discovery, even like buying the new stuff that was coming out because like I hadn't heard all of the bands ahead of time. Like, you know, if you missed them on the radio or their music didn't get played on the radio, like you didn't have a preview of that band. You bought the Mm. cassette based on what the album art looked like or based on what the band name was or their logo was that you thought was cool or or something like that. And so in a music magazine. A hundred percent. Absolutely. And, and at that point in time, like I wasn't, I was too young to go to concerts at that point in time too. So there was a lot of like not knowing what you were getting when you pushed play on your Walkman or your, you know, cassette player or something like that. And that was just this wonderful era. And now it's, you know, uh, the plus side is now the ability to discover new bands and obscure bands and things like that is just so much more. But at the same time, that sense of wonder can quickly go away because you have immediate answers to every question. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think there is one at all. It's similar to I, I think, and this is why I you know it is a kind of generational break in that I think it is similar to how. My, you're in my generation and even maybe the generation, uh, you know, after us are regard privacy on the internet, frankly, you know, um, compared to millennials and Gen Z 
who just grew up with the internet and the idea that, yeah, you know, you're kind of, people know everything about you. Um, and you just tell them everything about you and privacy. What's that? You know, and that's not to say that those generations don't have, don't have concerns about privacy, but they are much, much more open and forthcoming about their private lives and that just their lives in general than our generations are online. And, but to them, it's entirely normal. And that's my point is that much like, you know, streaming music and stuff or music discovery on YouTube to them, that is the world. So and that's why I, I think it's sometimes difficult to get across because it's not, it's not like they saw what it, it's not like us where we saw what it was choose. like and now we see how it is now. Yeah, exactly. Right. That was just, they had no choice. That was how they grew up. And so, yeah, as I say, it's just, I don't want to say one's better or worse because there are pros and cons to everything, but it is very, very different. I mean, it may, something you said there made me think, what is the role of a, of a reviewer? in a world where everything's on streaming or YouTube or Bandcamp, what's the point? Like, you know, reviewers used to be the, and again, this isn't necessarily a great thing because you can think of them as gatekeepers, but they used to be people who told us whether we should go out and spend money on an album. But now, because you're not spending money on a particular album, you're spending money on, you know, the streaming service. um, What does that matter? Who cares? Yeah, and that that's a reason why I feel like it, this is just my own personal thing, be it music or games or anything else. Like the the idea of putting a number on anything is absolutely ridiculous to me at this particular point. Because the only reason that I would read reviews, um, basically in general, but certainly today, is for that individual's thoughts on how that particular song movie show right, whatever some insight like, or something yeah. it resonated with them or insight or what um i think i've talked about the whole schema thing before about like how what is their frame of reference for this thing that they just experienced and yeah. how what do they relate it to and what what do they see as its influences and stuff like that because you're absolutely you know the idea of like this is a four out of five um just seems you know, right. when it's probably they could they could have gone to Spotify and listened to half the album in the time it's taken them to read the review. Right. <laughs> what's the, what's the point of a score? Yeah, it's also a quick real time follow up self correction. I just realised thinking about it that actually that wasn't quite true about Fields of the Nephilim. I had heard a couple of their singles which came out when I was in high school, I believe, before I went to art college. But I hadn't heard anything beyond that. I remembered hearing the singles, and I did quite like those but I never sort of investigated into them. And then, yeah, it was that. I distinctly remember Woody giving me that tape and going, you're going to love this. And he was bloody right. <laughs> yeah, that, I, wasn't that a great feeling as well, actually? That was a good oh, connection with people when they were like, I think you'll like this. And you listen to it and you're like, actually, yeah, fucking hell, I do. And that's it. Friend for life, you know? Well, that was the same thing. Yeah. And buying the cassettes, it's like, oh, you like that one? Oh, then you're definitely going to love this one. You know, you're going to love this band and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it was... That was such a great time for discovering music. And so I think it obviously informs a lot of the habits that I have now about like my three listen rule and all that stuff. Like those are self-imposed guidelines that I have created over time because I can listen to everything all the time now. And I can, you know, just listen to that album the second that it comes out, you know, at midnight or whatever, you know, like even now, like Friday mornings, uh, because it's new music release day, I'll often you know, give, run through a listen of different albums on, on release day, just to see if any of them are sort of 
um, sticking with me or something like that. But yeah, so I've, I've created these rules to sort of hold on to my <laughs> youthful experience in, you know, checking some of this stuff out. So, but yeah, yeah I mean, I, in Trivium, like thinking about them as a band, right? Been around for more than 20 years. This is their 10th studio album. And my understanding of this band and experience with this band is extremely limited, even though they've been around for two decades now. Yeah. I mean, yep. Same here. Like I said, I, I actually deliberately did not go back and listen to much of Trivium's older stuff in preparation for this show. I wanted to take this album, you know, kind of in, in isolation so that I could judge it without, because it, you know, knowing my tastes, it's entirely possible that an album like Ascendancy actually might be more for me, you know, might be more my kind of thing. And so I didn't want that to happen. And then me be comparing this album to that, even though, you know, I'd heard, discovered them as it were the other way around. I didn't think that would be fair. So I actually haven't listened to a lot of older stuff of theirs yet. Um, once we've recorded this episode, then I will do that. Then I will, yeah. you know, sort of, take them in more as a as a whole band as it were i did go back because i've I've listened to as i mentioned when you said that we were going to be listening to this album i had already listened to in the court of the dragon many times and was very excited to have this episode be focused on it but i hadn't listened to a lot of their other stuff i, I think i gave their 2020 album um you know one or what two the dead listens say Yes, I, yeah. I had given that a couple of listens because I had seen a couple of the videos that came out with with that album, and then I did go back yesterday actually and listen to Ascendancy because I had heard so many people talk about that as like the high watermark of their early stuff, and just to compare it to um, this album here, which I you know will get into my feelings about this one, but it was interesting to go back and uh, and um. I can see why people really liked that album back then, but I also see the growth in what they're doing now. Mm. And to me, it's night and day. I think Ascendancy is still their best selling album. They're, you know, a bit like, say, Paradise Lost, we talked about before, who's, um, what was it, Draconian Times, which is their fifth yeah. album, where, you know, is still their best selling. And that was, you know, nearly 30 years ago now, um, is still their best selling album. Uh, and so, yeah, it seems to be the case here with Ascendancy as well. But part of that, actually talking about metal subgenres and what have you, um, that YouTuber Jack actually definitely would put trivium in the new metal subgenre in the way he defines new metal um and i'm kind of because i was already getting on a bit frankly when new metal was came around um i'm sort of like uh, you know I, i'm prepared to take his word for it i mean you know like you i don't really care what subgenre something actually is but i can see how this band would fall into that category and as a result may have been you know just sort of caught the zeitgeist for a short time and had that best-selling album that hits and everybody goes yes yes this is the you know the the greatest album of the moment but then not fade away but you know sort of decline in sales as time goes on tastes move on and the band might struggle to evolve you know we've seen that with so many bands haven't we we totally have and and um I don't want to go down the subgenre rabbit hole, but like when when someone says new metal, just 
give me three bands off the top of your head that you think about. Because well, it, I don't even know if I categorize new metal <laughs> like the way that other people well, do. This is the thing. I think this is the problem. Like to you and me, to people of our generation, new metal means rap metal. That's what we think of. And, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but to our generation, that's always what it meant to me and most of the people I know who are around my age. We think of Limp Biscuit and um, uh, Linkin Park and, you know, wh- whoever else was around doing the rap metal thing at that time. You know, I don't know, Alien Ant Farm or somebody. Um, that's what we think of when you, or Trapped. Was it that, that was that was Trapped, bad, wasn't it? Holy Lord, yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I would so two that, of those bands, I think X, that's the sort of that's what we think of as new metal. But yeah, but I'm not sure if the younger generations actually think of it that way. I'm not sure if that is how they define it. So, so it let tricky. me ask you this then. <laughs> I know I'm opening up a can of worms here. What what is Slipknot? Exactly. See, I would not. Cl- I personally. Don't think of Slipknot as new metal at all, but they absolutely get lumped in by most other people as okay. a new metal band. So I'm not crazy to, 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 because so, and all of this relates to Trivium, because if someone had just in passing said, you know, what do you know about Trivium? I, it might, I, I think just in my head, the first thing that would pop up is new metal is that they're part of, you know, new metal, because to me, new metal is, um, is corn is corn that was the other band i was trying to think of thank you <laughs> yeah um i didn't think of limp biscuit immediately but you're absolutely right but but and slipknot would be a band that i would throw in there as well and for some reason i have no idea like mudvayne is another band that jumps oh in yeah, my, yeah 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 in my mind and i don't even know why like i know like one song from them and i couldn't even tell you the title of it but, they were big um, at the same time as slipknot they wore masks you know yes and so and trivium if you had asked me i would completely put in um uh I would in my head think that they're they're in that same um, genre as all of those bands. And to me, new metal, much like grunge, it, it has a negative it, it has like a negative connotation to me in some ways in terms of it not being like my favorite genre of music or among my favorite genres of music. And so there are bands within those categories that I would like and um, you know maybe even have albums from. But also many of the bands, like I never would have even tried out because I just, it just wasn't a genre of music that was, you know, totally resonating with me. And so, um, like Slipknot, I couldn't, I couldn't name four songs from Slipknot. Um, okay. So hang on. Let me, so let me turn this around slightly. What to you is metalcore then? Because that's what I would have put Trivium into. I have no, I have no idea. <laughs> like, <laughs> what, what is metalcore i guess is my question all right like any of that core stuff i don't know any of it i don't know what deathcore is i don't know what metalcore is i don't know I, is there even a thrash core i have no idea i'm I, sure there is almost certainly. um what does the core what does that denote it's right and it's a tricky one because again you know i was around and freelancing on on hammer when metalcore kind of exploded and at the time, to me, metalcore was almost like sort of a modern version of math metal. It was very technical, lots of time changes, uh, an emphasis on like, you know, very heavy stuff, very uh, technical drumming again as well. Yeah. Uh, harsh vocals, um, but with modern, you know, almost emo lyrics. 
That okay. to me was what meant. Now that may not be what metalcore means to anybody else, <laughs> but to me, just, you know, at the time when it, as I say, it exploded, that was kind of what unified those bands to me. And so that's why I would have put a band like Trivium in the metalcore category. I think ever since metalcore, uh, core, unfortunately has become a suffix that just gets slapped onto anything that seems to be a modern version of an old genre. So deathcore really just kind of means modern death metal. Okay. You know, these days. Um, I, I can get, I can get behind that. It's uh, kind of devalued a bit, you know? Yeah. Um, but watching that YouTube series, like, because, you know, he's much more, much younger and more contemporary actually made me think about that because he says, and maybe this is true. I genuinely don't know. He says that metalcore came about as a combination of old school thrash metal and hardcore fusion. And I'm like, but we had that and it was called fusion. <laughs> like we already had those bands, didn't we? That was like suicidal tendencies. And these metalcore bands don't sound anything like suicidal tendencies. So I found that fascinating how terms and, you know, the, the way the genres can change like that. And it's, you know, this is all opinion. Who's right, who's wrong? Well, nobody, because it doesn't fucking matter at the end of the day. But I found it really interesting to, to think about that and think, well, you know, how terms have changed. Yeah, it is wild to think about. Because for me, like I, and that's why, honestly, like I don't get into a lot of deep conversations about genre other than like the ones that are really clear to me, right? Which is it's like punk, rock, hair metal, thrash metal. But again, like all Even of those, then. you can break <laughs> them down. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> because you got your, like your Bay Area thrash and you've got your East Coast and, 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 um, well, and you've you got know, modern punk. What I yeah, think well, of then is you've punk got crossover, is... right? And so then you, which is what I would say, like suicidal tendencies, um, you, you know, would be, or like DRI, right? And, and, um, right. But then you've got band like Green Day who absolutely get called punk, like, you know, without any which, irony whatsoever, which the to funny me thing is, is that's the one genre where I'd be like, <laughs> oh, that's pop punk, right? Um, right. Yeah. Blink 182, you know, Green Day, some 41, that kind of stuff. Um, which I don't, is it, you know, pop punk, but that's, that's what I would probably say. But yeah, that's like one of the few like subgenres that I would even sort of think about. But so my, my whole thought about all of that is like, uh, take it if it helps you, because right. for me, if, and for the YouTube series that we're talking about, Jack's uh, YouTube series, like if, if having those tags assigned to different types of music helps you, helps you discover them, helps you gravitate in a certain direction, you know, helps you want to explore sort of things, then I'm all in favor of that. Yes. If it in any way um, puts you off on exploring music, which I find labels often do, new metal being one of those, grunge being one of those, um, then I kind of don't hair metal being one that, that just creates, um, you know, has people scoff at that an entire era of music, um, because of the, the label that's sort of put upon it. And so if it takes you away from exploration, I don't like the whole label discussion. If it helps you, then absolutely. Whatever, whatever helps you explore music more, um, I'm for that. But yeah, for me, there are genres of music that have, uh, like it, it, it's almost like a, 
you know, an unconscious bias thing of like, as soon as you mention it, I'm like, oh yeah, that probably wouldn't be for me then. Um, you know, like, uh, like anytime somebody puts math in the, uh, (laughs) you know, name, which again, like, uh, and I just, I worked for a math organization for four and a half years, um, most recently. So I know like the, the sort of knee jerk reaction that people have just to math in general, but like that. So yeah, if the labels are a, a positive thing for you and they, and they help you find new music, great. If they, if, it's kind of a way of avoiding things. Nah, I don't, I don't I, like it. No, I mean, I'm, I think that's a really good insight and I'm a hundred percent in agreement. Yeah. If it, if, if you like a band and somebody says, Oh, they're an X band, you should listen to other X bands. And that yep. helps you discover new bands that you like. That's fucking great. Like that's the best possible outcome. Um, it does make me think that there's so much, um, crossover these days there are so there's so much goes into every band so much influence you know think about it metal is now a 50 year old genre it is no longer a young right. genre it's got a lot of uh history and influence for every band to draw on and it is increasingly difficult because of those that mashing of influences for any band to kind of you know invent a new style it felt like in the 80s and 90s there were new types of metal, new styles of metal being invented every few years. And that doesn't feel like it's happened so much in the last 10 to 20 years, but I think that is that's not a that's nobody's fault. It's because the genre's matured and like I say there's so much history to draw on. But think of a band like uh, Orbit Culture that we did. How do you even classify a band like that? What are they? Is it, That's a great question. Is it death metal? Is it black metal? Is it emo? Is it metalcore? Like, who the fuck knows? You know, it's metal. That's the one thing we can all agree on, is that they're a heavy metal band. And that's pretty much about it. I would love to hear what how people classify Orbit culture, because I, I, I'm not sure I could. If somebody said, what genre are they? I don't know, yeah, like death, thrash, maybe? So I'm not sure I could. Uh, yeah, I think it, I, I think you're so it. right. Um, and what's man that that's also making me think about like you know, do, it, it's going to lead to a simplification at some point, right? Because we're we, things have gotten to be so niche, and there's so many labels, and there's so many things that it that it you know, like you just said. Seems I right know for it's metal. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's metal. Um, but for me, it, it makes me think of like different ways of like categorizing that stuff and talking about it. Right. And I think for, for me, so much of metal in, and music in general, but definitely metal is like, what is this particular group or genre make me feel right? And so is it, is it just that 100% aggressive catharsis in listening to this, is it a, you know, is it a band that I listen to when I want to like get in my feelings, you know, and like, and like grieve, or is it a band that, um, when I want to feel empowered and I want to feel like I could take on the world, like, um, you know, we talked about that when we talked about Twisted Sister, right? Like one of the things I love about old school Twisted Sister is, you know, songs like I Am, I'm Me, like songs about standing up for yourself and, and not caring what other people think about you and that kind of stuff. And so I do often choose what I'm going to listen to nowadays by the feeling that I'm trying to evoke. Um, You know, it's why people listen to certain metal when they go to the gym, right? Because they need to get that kind of push and stuff like that. And so, um, 
and Test- sort of bring Testament, it back. By the way, Testaments are a really fucking great gym band. <laughs> oh yeah, they're a great band. Um, yeah, but also like Testament scratches that Megadeth itch for me too, where they're they're the technicality of that band as well is really offers just a lot. And like, and I think of a band like Trivium and like this. One of the notes that I made about this album, and I know we'll get into the individual tracks and stuff soon, is depth. And mm. like, there are times where I want to listen to something that I don't have to think about too much because I'm doing something else. It's on in the background, you know, and that could be something that is a complex piece of music, but I've heard it a million times. And so I don't have to, you know, engage with it on the same level if I'm doing other tasks, but then there's other music that I want to kind of sit down and really absorb because there's a lot going on and it's very satisfying to me to start to pick apart those pieces um, that all kind of come together to form this thing. And that is definitely this album for me. This album, I think, can be um, superficially a, a good listen. If you're just, you know, running through it for the first time, I think it makes a good first impression. But I also feel like this is one of those that we often talk about that re- rewards repeated listens. Um, and so it would be an album. It's an album I put on when I have time to dedicate my attention to it. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I was actually just thinking that, I mean, I, uh, because of COVID and what have you, I haven't actually been to, in a gym for quite some time. But when I do finally get back in the gym, this will probably be, this album will probably be in that rotation uh, on my headphones, because actually I imagine this probably could be a really good workout album um, Yeah, for, for many reasons. But I absolutely agree with you that it also rewards, you know, more careful listening uh, and more sort of in-depth and repeated listening. I will say it for sure. I mean, I had a good first impression of the album, as you said, but I also definitely warmed to various parts of it more the more I listened to mm-hmm. it. Um, because that familiarity enables you to sort of listen beyond the surface and listen to the layers that are going on underneath. Um, so yeah, totally in agreement with you there. Let's talk about the band then. Um Yeah. So they were formed in 99, as we said. Uh, first album was 2003, I think we said, wasn't it? Um, they Oh, I have a dubious claim to fame about this band. <laughs> Do you remember I've, I've mentioned before that uh, Jesse Pintado from Napalm Death once tried to chat up my then-girlfriend uh, in a Birmingham nightclub? I think I do remember you mentioning that. Well, my dubious trivium claim to fame is that Matt Healy once propositioned an ex-girlfriend of mine. Uh, <laughs> that's all I'll say Really? About that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Matt Heafy uh, is the guy, guy in guitars and vocals. Corey, uh, do you know I watched loads of videos trying to get him to say his own name, his own I, surname. I have it, Bolio. <laughs> right, and I was going to say, is it Bolio? Is it Bewley? Is it Bolio? I don't know. Corey from Trivium is how he yes. introduces himself okay. on <laughs> every video I saw. He's on guitars. Uh, Paolo Gregoletto on bass and Alex Bent on drums. Who is the newest member of that lineup? Um, they're almost napalm death-like in that technically there are no founding members left in the band. Um, Healy joined the first incarnation, but he wasn't a founder. He was invited by the guys who'd already formed the band and then slowly they left and he was the, you know, the oldest. Right. And he has become, uh, he has become the face of the band. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they've had a lot of 
Well, they had a lot of membership changes in the early years, but I, I, from what I see, they've been fairly stable since 2005. So actually, for most of their recording career, with only the drummer changing all the time. And then this guy, Alex Bent, joined them five years ago, which actually makes him now the longest serving drummer since their first, Travis Smith. Um, well, and what's interesting about that is a lot of people have, uh, and again, I haven't followed their sort of uh, musical ebbs and flows, but a lot of people believe that the 2017 album, The Sin and the Sentence, was like a, the, you know, the proverbial quote-unquote return to form or, yeah. um, you know, turning point for the band. And so the three albums that he's now been on, I think it's three. Um, it is, yeah. Uh, seems to be like the the renaissance era for this band i have seen a lot of people a lot of fans in you know youtube comments and forum comments and stuff while i was reading around basically say that you know alex bent has been a lifesaver for the band uh, and has really kind of upped their game and taken them places they couldn't go before a bit like when um uh mickey joined motorhead yep same same thing there you know suddenly they'd got an actually a really fucking good drummer that who could hold things down and let Lemmy write songs that he just couldn't write before because they didn't have the drummer to cope with it. Um, so that's interesting, especially, and that will be even more interesting as we get into our opinions of the songs, actually. Um, one of the interesting things I found is that on this album, and I don't know if it's true for previous albums, all the songwriting is credited to the whole band. Like, there's... Yeah. But I saw in interviews um, that it's... Paolo, the bassist, is actually one of the main songwriters and writes quite a few lyrics. And Matt Healy writes like all the other lyrics. Um, but it's, it's, I thought that's nice and unusual to see a bassist who is one of the main songwriters of a band and often talks to the press about, you know, their um, songwriting and recording process. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, this is a band where if you start to pull out the individual performances, like, they're all amazing. Oh, they are incredibly talented <laughs> are, musicians. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just unbelievably talented musician. I mean, you talk about, you know, uh, drummer Alex Bent, holy Lord. Um, you know, he's a guy who has me th rethinking like my, my top drummers list as I listen to this album, because just like so many different, and me not being, you know, a, um, a musician myself, like just, but just hearing how he's controlling tempo and choices that are being made, you know, as they as they come into a chorus or out of a chorus or just like absolutely incredible. Um, and then Paolo's bass playing, like there are times where I wish that it was further up in the mix. Higher in the mix, yeah, yeah. Because holy Lord, when you really start to key in on what he is doing, I mean, first of all, it's like blisteringly fast in a, a lot of ways, but also like absolutely beautiful. Um, and so complex, some of the stuff that yeah, he's he, doing. He and is anything but a root note bassist. <laughs> good Lord. And it's like, you just, and I think to me, like, that's the mark of a, of a great album where I want to, I want to have four versions of this album where it's just like the individual, <laughs> just give me a vocals track, a guitar track, a bass track and a drums track so that I can really. Well, but even really... then you'd want two guitar tracks. Because they're not, oh, absolutely. Because Alex and Corey are not playing the same things. Like, apart from the when they, you know, sort of settle into a proper, just traditional chugging riff, most of the time they are playing completely different parts, much like, say, Paradise Lost or something. You know, they are not just repeating one another's phrases. 
Well, and also like Matt's lead vocals and then Corey and Paolo are also doing backing vocals and yes. just like the way that those are layered on and the, and how they accent one another and things like that are just really, um, really amazing. But yeah, it feels so. So to go back to the point that you were making about like them having this sort of uh, collaborative process in terms of song songwriting, I feel like in general, and this is probably a sweeping generalization, but when there is one primary songwriter for a band you can tell you know what i mean like as far as they're just being this singular driving vision and not all elements of the band get equal consideration and when it is a more collaborative process it, i feel like it tends to show up in the music because each component of that band is being leveraged to its uh, to a fuller capacity. You know what I mean? Now that is a really interesting thing to ponder because a lot of my favorite bands do have one principal main. Oh, same to Megadeth. I mean, um, it is it is Dave Mustaine, right? And so, um, you know, when right. I listen you can, to that if, stuff, if you if you remove the value judgment from a statement like that, you're right that you can tell because there's that sort of well, there's that consistency for one thing, which can sometimes suffer in bands uh, where there isn't a principal songwriter, but also what you said about not every other member of the band gets to shine. But that can also, that's a double-edged sword. Oh, sure. Because part of my issue with some of the modern metal bands is that there is, it's a cacophony, and there is actually it's too noise. much going on. Yes, You know, but because 100%. Every, every musician is just like fret-wanking like crazy, and you're like, holy shit, dude, where's the tune? Where's the riff? Yep. Um, yes, who's holding this together? Right, and yeah. um, and so you're absolutely right. I think to your point, like you can't make a value judgment on it because it can be a bad thing just as much as it can be a good thing um, because right. some but, music but yeah, is better served and by yeah, having this one singular vision. But yeah, and so I think to, to go further on that, I think it's all the more impressive when you have a collaborative process that results in a work that in feels the sort of like it complements itself. Yeah, yes, yeah. and works together, and every all the pieces fit because it is tremendously difficult to, you know, when, when you when you're the singular vision guy, the problem is up front because up front you have to let everybody else know, or that's you know those are the table stakes for everybody else being part of this project. Is I'm the vision, I'm the guy who's doing you know, who's going to write all this stuff when you're doing something collaboratively, that challenge is all throughout because it's, because you're doing this thing together and you're, you know, everybody's got to have, well, I think we should do this here. Well, what if we did this here? And how about if we do this here? And so, um, I think it also, it it also distributes or not distributes trust. I'm trying to think of how to word this. When there is a, a single songwriter, the pressure that they're under is partly coming from the other band members, trusting that they are going to write good songs. Right. You know, it's like, okay, well, we'll leave it up to you. They better be fucking good. (laughs) Whereas, do you say, when everybody's involved in that process, then you don't have that. You know, yes, there's still pressure on everybody to sort of make good songs, but it is kind of distributed. It is more evenly spread, and you're not pointing at any one particular person going, you promised us you were going to write us great songs and actually these are shit. Right. And, and a lot of times too, it comes across as like you, 
there, there are parts in a song or on an album where the other members of the band are like thrown a bone, right? It, it, you know, in some oh, reasons yeah. you yeah, could, yeah. you could look at the whole, um, uh, a lot of bands in the hair metal genre where that's why such an emphasis is on the lead guitar player getting to play their solo, right? Or that's why we're doing a drum solo here or something like that. Or this is why we're doing a bass thing here because, you know, for a lot of those bands, like there is one songwriter and, um, you know, they're getting an opportunity to sort of show off in one part of the music or one part of the song. Yeah. Given their um, moment to shine, like. Yeah. A hundred percent. All right. So let's start talking about the album this album in particular um yeah last year 2021 only a year after their previous album uh, and from what i saw i think they said that uh it was a lot of the stuff on this album was kind of already partly written during the sessions for that previous album 10 songs 52 minutes um doesn't outstay its welcome i don't think it's uh no. you know it's kind of it, it feels like a good length i mean that's that's longer than some albums we've covered on the show but it doesn't feel like it drags you know or at any point like oh you know this should be two songs shorter or whatever right no i would agree i for me it's all all killer and no filler and uh i'm impressed that there's an album i can't think of another album off the top of my head that has three songs that are more than seven minutes long that i feel like justify their existence <laughs> well, um, I, I was wondering about that with you yeah because then i noticed there's like this back half of the album yeah three songs over seven minutes and i was like <sighs> How, you know brian says he really likes this yeah, album i'm confused when we, <laughs> when we talk about the individual tracks like we'll definitely hit on that i wanted to mention a couple interviews that i saw just uh, you know that have happened over the past um you know, like 11 months sure. or so, there was an October interview with with uh, Apollo, the bass player, and uh, it was with Maniacs Online. And the question put to him was, it's really interesting that you're on the verge of your highest chart position in the UK, because I feel like that qualifies with the general feeling of renewed interest in Trivium right now, all across the metal world. Why do you think people are so into your band right now? And he said, I think that the sin in the sentence was a bit of a turnaround for us as we you and I talked about, um, that was the 2017 first album, album with Alex Benz. Yeah, correct. He says, uh, that plus obviously getting Alex into the band kind of gave us a bit of new energy in the writing department. From that moment, we really just kind of started to find a good groove again. And we were able to channel some of that enthusiasm and energy and ideas from earlier albums like ascendancy and Shogun. And we're able to mix those things in with our additional experience and abilities. He said, Alex is such a phenomenal drummer. And I truly think that that has been a big part of it. Drumming is such a big part of metal, and Alex has such an incredible amount of skill that it allows us to do things that we've not been able to do before. So it's a combination of all that stuff, plus we've done some great touring over the last few years that has made us such a tighter live band than we've been before. So we're able to channel that. He said also doing the records back-to-back has been a big thing for us as well. I think it added to the consistency between the records. Being able to just move on making the next one has allowed us to, in my opinion surpass what we achieved on what the dead men say he said i think all of that has added up to people getting more interested in our band again whether it's old fans coming back to the fold or new ones hearing about us for the first time it seems that everyone has just been really stoked on what they're hearing so uh, you know i think we mentioned that in the top but these albums came out about 15 months apart from one another yeah really quick succession yeah which for a lot of our younger listeners like is it used wild. to be normal. <laughs> yeah. It feels wild now, but um back in the day, like there was 
there was that type of output happening yeah. for me. Every, you know, every put 12 out the to album, 18 months, tour, you expected a new album. A hundred percent. And so, but nowadays that's almost unheard of. Um, another thing that, that came up in a different interview with Loudwire, uh, Matt Heafy was being interviewed. Um, I, I'm sure everyone realizes that when they put out the the previous album, What the Dead Men Say, that's when COVID hit. They were supposed to go out and tour that whole album. They were going to be part of the Megadeth and Lamb of God tour, the the metal tour of the year that got postponed. I actually saw them in twenty September of 21, and that was a year and a half at least after they were supposed to originally come around. So um, in this Hefe interview, which was September of 21, um, he was asked, you know, uh, due to the pandemic, there wasn't a tour looming over the making of the new album in the Court of the Dragon. What changed about the process without time constraints? Um, and he said, well, it's pretty crazy that we released two records in that span. He said, for the first lockdown, we were approached, it sounds like by the record company, he's saying, and they said, uh, hey, you guys have this record done. We should delay it. And he said, we didn't want to delay it. We, you know, the label was like, well, we're not going to sell anything. And he said, well, we don't care. All we want to do is get this album out and give people something to enjoy. So we put out what the dead men say, and we weren't able to tour on it or sell CDs. But what we said to ourselves was that we need to keep an eye on and, and keep being forward thinking about this and not stop moving. We had at the time, the most successful paid for metal streams and we did two incredible free ones on Twitch as well. And I'm going to pause what he's saying there because I don't know if people are aware of this, but I this was one of the rabbit holes that I fell down when I was putting notes together for this album. So he has, Matt Heafy has about 240,000 Twitch followers. And he does frequent live streams where he's uh, playing music. I don't know if he, if he streams games and stuff like that, but he's got a huge Twitch following. I know that Corey does. He streams um, games. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things I've kind of lamented during the lockdown period of COVID was how I felt like there was a golden opportunity for bands to really rethink their whole approach to live events and things like that and really start to incorporate streaming in a way that it hadn't been thought of before in the music industry. And I feel like with much like with a lot of things having to do with um, the lockdown, like all the lessons that were learned seem to have been forgotten, you know, during that time. (laughs) Whereas like, but Trivium seems to be one of the few bands that has really thought through not just how to manage that period of time, but how they're going to manage it moving forward. These guys went out and did a live stream event in July of 21 that sold, uh, I think, over 12,000 tickets and got... Wow. They made like $100,000 on it or something like that. And they did the stream from, I think, Full Sail University in Florida. But they went all out with with um, you know lighting and, and stage presence and all that other kind of stuff. And so they were doing these big scale streams they were kind of gambling on it and seeing if it paid off and then they went and bought an airplane hangar that they've turned into a full studio and also like performance streaming area oh and so that's that's hangar 99 that's where they've recorded two of their last music videos now that makes sense Oh man, I kept see I watched like the music videos for the singles for this and two of them are clearly recorded in the same aircraft hangar like space. 
But so I had, and, and they're credited at the end as like, you know, Trivium Hangar 99. And I thought Hangar 99 was a production company. I mean, maybe it is, but it seems clear now that they are one and the same thing. Ha! Huh. And so now I'm going to jump back into what he was responding to in this question. And so uh, he said, we then decided after the, the uh, streams that they were doing, he said, we then decided we all needed to live in the same place. Paolo moved down from Illinois. Alex moved in from California and we got places 10 minutes away from each other. We were able to be around each other and be creative when we needed to be and when we wanted to be. We were able to invest in ourselves a little bit, so we bought an airplane hangar and converted it into a studio slash live stream room slash production place, a mixed media facility headquarters. In the interim, um, we got in a room together to see what we could come up with for new music. Trivium does best when it's just the four of us creating the kind of music that we want to hear for ourselves when we're together. He said, I know there are some bands that do better writing in the studio, some bands write with outside writers, but for us, it's always been about writing the kind of music that the four of us want to hear for ourselves. We don't think of it, um, we don't think of if our fans are going to like it, We it's a matter of making what we want to make. He said, the last three records were made without constraints. We didn't tell anybody we were making anything. I was still keeping my normal stream schedule in the mornings, and I'd go into the studio during the afternoon, then come home and get the kids ready for bed and everything else to keep the mystery up. So then we had everything ready to go. When we had everything ready to go, we could just announce it very tastefully with a very curious piece versus just the standard social media team. And so here's a band that is rethinking and in a very forward-thinking way, like not only how they're making music today, how they're going to make music moving forward. And I saw him say in another interview that the place that they've created is a place that other bands can come and make music and other bands can do live streams and stuff like that. And it's that type of, that that's the type of thing I thought we were going to see more of when COVID shut everything down. I thought we were going yeah. to see more innovation in that area. And I actually thought that there wasn't much of any of it coming out of this. And now to be seeing this as we're getting ready to talk about this episode, to see that these guys were, that's exactly what they went out and did was made me super happy <laughs> because that's, that's what I think. That's where I think the future lies with this stuff is you have to have bands that understand and are pursuing this and are innovating in this area and are creating ways that, their eggs aren't all in one basket and the whole house of cards doesn't fall down if they can't tour live in person for a year or something like that. And so to, to not only embrace that, but to build a place that they control to be able to do this stuff moving forward to me is brilliant. So I had no idea about any of that, about any of that. I love it. I love that. That actually makes me even more inclined to like this band because that is smart. Yep. That is good. We've talked before about, you know, this is not the 1990s. You need to think like a business. And that is thinking like a business. That is thinking, as you say, how can we make ourselves resilient to setbacks like COVID? How can we do things differently? How can we continue making a living using new technology? I fucking love it. Like, yeah, it's awesome, dude. Metal? And and like they're still going out and tour. like they just oh, announced still a, touring. a, a, no, a no, fall I know. 2022 yeah. tour. Yeah. Uh with um who are the bands that they just announced a tour with? They just announced a tour with a bunch of bands that's going to kick off this fall 
So they're obviously still fully embracing the, you know, the physical uh, in-person sure. touring model. But why but they're not, not both? wholly dependent on it. A hundred percent. Agree a hundred percent. Metal is modernist. This is this is one of the reasons why, you know, look, I'm, I get as nostalgic as anyone. Everybody knows that, you know, you can look at my choices for this show, clearly, <laughs> you know, and we joke about being old men. But part of my love of metal is the new, is the fact that it looks forward and it does evolve and it does develop and it does incorporate new technology and it's not afraid of new things. That's one of the reasons I love this genre. And... So a band doing that, not just in their music, but in their outlook and the way they conduct themselves and the way they do business. I love that. I absolutely. That is 100% in the spirit of metal, in my opinion. Agreed. And uh, the tour they just announced is with Between the Buried and Me, Whitechapel and Chemist are the bands that they're going out with right. um, uh, also, this fall. But- you talk about like, you know, you were surprised more bands didn't do it. You're right. The were thinking about it. Um, uh, shit, I've forgotten their fucking name. The Finnish band that we did. Um, uh, Nightwish. Nightwish. I kept, I kept wanting to say Moon Dream. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me that's not a band name, because if it isn't, then it should be. maybe it that's should the be. title yeah. of your next uh, Silencion but, album. But Nightwish did that. They did a, a big... Uh, and Paradise Lost as well. But what they did, and I don't know if this is the same as the Trivium one, what they did was a... Actually, no, it sounds like it is a sort of professionally filmed gig just with no audience. Um, yeah. You know, so it was, it, did they do it live or did they record it and then make it available for the Nightwish um, one? I'm not sure. The Paradise Lost one was definitely it was streamed live, but they did also record it and released it on DVD because I have that. I bought the DVD. I didn't go to the live stream, but I have the DVD. Um, but I know that it was the original what's on the DVD is a recording of what was streamed live. Um, The Nightwish one, I'm not so sure about. But you're right. It is surprising that more bands didn't do that. Especially, like, I mean, Nightwish, maybe they are. Okay, we've talked about how successful they are. Paradise Lost are not a band rolling in money. You know what I mean? This is not Metallica who can offer a new bassist a million-dollar signing bonus. (laughs) Um, And if they can do it it, on, you know, a sort of a workable budget then surely any reasonably half successful dude. band could have done it. And yet so many didn't a hundred percent. And there, and, and I know that there's people that are listening. They'd be like, no, this band did this. And this band, there was definitely bands that did streamed performances. Striper actually recorded, they were in the studio working on a new album and they recorded full in studio playthroughs of some of their classic albums oh, nice. where they played the entire album. I think one of them was the the new album that they had just put out and one of them it might have been Soldiers Under Command that they did. But um and they would sell tickets to the recording. What they did was they came on before it and I think after it and did like a QA and a live stream and that but the performance was was pre recorded. Yeah. But it was in the studio. And then um Armored Saint when they put out their new album, they did a live stream release performance from the whiskey and they streamed it from there and i and i bought tickets to it and i watched it live so those are two examples of like a a live one where you're actually watching it live and then one where it's pre-recorded but you put some live elements around it Mm. so there were definitely bands that were doing that and i and he said in one of the articles there's either him or paulo that said um you know we're we're kind of one of those bands in the middle of the success kind of 
you know, uh, spectrum there. Yeah. Yes. Where they, they were saying like, we have to keep moving to stay alive. Like we can't afford to just shut it all down and not have, you know, anything going on for that time. And so obviously that drives the fact that they're continuing to innovate. But yeah, I just, I remember saying at the beginning of everything closing down, like this is a real opportunity for bands to think about how it's been done and how it can be done moving forward. So it's awesome to see, a band like Trivium that's like, yeah, we're going to completely take control of this situation for ourselves so that we're not, we're not going to react to the next thing that happens. We're going to adapt to the next thing that, that happens. And I think like, and not to completely digress, but just like in media in general, in uh, companies in general, like just the whole like landscape right now, there's two categories of, people in two categories of like organizations, those that are going to have to react to whatever the next big thing that befalls us happens. And those who are preparing to adapt and that whole like reacting versus adapting to me is very interesting. And I love to see people who are thinking more of the adapting they're preparing now they're innovating now so that they are ready to adapt to whatever comes as opposed to um, being forced to react to that. And and I think, as you said, you know, we want to see metal continue to thrive. We want to see metal continue to innovate and, and be on the leading edge of this stuff. And so it's really super cool to see a band doing that. Absolutely. Um, so this album was produced by Josh Wilbur, who is a name that most people may not be familiar with. Uh, but actually, when I looked at his credits, he also produced the Lamb of God album that we did on this show, Sturm and Drang. Uh, what an album. And has worked with them on a few other things, I think, as well. Um, but he also has, like, Grammys. And he's worked with Megadeth and also, like, pop acts. I mean, like, Avril Lavigne is one of his, you know, one of his credits. So this guy gets around uh, and does a lot of, like, non-metal stuff as well, which I find fascinating because the sound... Uh, and, you know, and, and obviously we know producers aren't always responsible for the sound. You know, there's a sound engineer involved and stuff as well. But still, the sound on this album is so very modern metal uh, yeah. that he clearly knows his way around the genre. And yet, yeah, also apparently works with pop acts. Go figure. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned him because the production on this album is fantastic. You know, I did mention that. I, I would love to hear the bass up a little bit more in the mix. But in terms of production, this album sounds fantastic yeah. and to the point where you can feel the style of playing in certain areas that i feel like just adds to the songs um but yeah it's the, this is a great sounding album and you know i listen to it with with proper headphones on not my earbuds but like proper uh headphones on and it's just got a great sound Although one thing you can't tell unless you watch the video is that on one of these songs, at one point, Paolo is finger tapping his bass. <laughs> there is a bit in one of the middle eights where he is literally finger tapping like uh, a melody out on his bass. Uh, just nuts. <laughs> I feel, you know, I, that, I actually had that question while I was listening to it is how often he um, he plays without a pick because there are certain elements of the songs where I feel like he's, he's gotta be finger picking with this. Uh, I didn't see him use a pick in any of the videos that I watched. Okay. He was finger picking. He was using fingers like the whole time. Yep. There were no plectrums involved at all. 
Yep, that makes sense to me then because he the the way that his bass sounds sounds like that to me. And but, but um, it's kind of incredible that somebody can play that fast. The speed, like, like that's Steve Harris like speed, isn't it? Oh, to- well, there I, there's obviously a heavy Maiden influence on you know these guys. I feel like in terms, at, at the very least, in terms of certainly in terms of style, I think in a lot of places, but also in terms of scope. Um, right. You know, they have ambitious, there's a vision for the type of epic, you know, that they're going for here that is very Maiden-esque to well, me. Uh, let's let's talk about that then, because I'll, I'll start that by saying the artwork as well is oh, f- fantastic, a beautiful amazing. painting. And I, I got a quote, not I got a quote, but I found a quote from Matthew Heafy about that. And he said, because somebody said like, you know, this is like such an unusual but great cover what's the story there and he said while the music of in the court of the dragon was taking shape we knew we needed epic artwork of the Mm -hmm. type that you might see on the wall of an important museum from a long dead renaissance master after extensive research we found one of the few living artists who is capable of creating artwork like caravaggio and gentileschi painter matthew nozieras matthew took our song title and created an original oil painting on canvas unlike anything we could have ever imagined. It's so staggeringly breathtaking and epic, and it looks like what the song and album sounds like. Now, I might take issue with the very last sentence of that statement, but he's got to say that, you know, because obviously he's trying to flog the album. Um, But it is an absolutely awesome painting. Like, to realise that that is an actual oil painting is just incredible. Uh, Unbelievable. And I would say that, to me, one of the staples of the metal genre and the metal that we grew up with is album covers. Great artwork. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so to see again in 2021, when this album comes out, like that level of care and depth and attention to detail for an album cover in an era where album covers are, especially in the era of streaming, right? So many people, they're like an inch square on your phone screen. Yeah. Yeah. So many people don't even think twice about album covers. I mean, that, to me, is uh, is fundamental to what metal is. And so it's awesome. It's a fantastic cover. But it speaks to, the reason I wanted to say that now, as we move into this other subject, was because it speaks to what you were about to say about them sort of building mythologies. A hundred percent. And like, it, and so, I, I mean, we could talk about the whole King and Yellow thing as, as we sort of Do you want to do that as we go through the album then? Let's I think, do it as we go through uh, okay. it. Because I, I think we're uh, on the same wavelength there, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. So, right. you ready to jump into the tracks? Let's do it. So, track one is the opening track. It's an instrumental and it's simply called X. So here's my thought about instrumentals. I actually wrote a uh, sentence here, and I apologize if you can hear my dog uh, barking downstairs. But he's he's uh, he loves this album he, too. He he's anxious <laughs> about any human being that kind of walks down the street. But uh, so I wrote here um, an opening like this can seem pretentious or cheesy because it implies that what follows is going to be epic. 
It makes a promise, and many albums fail to make good on a promise like that. And I think that anytime you have like an instrumental opening, whether it's a minute and a half like this, or it's or it's thirty seconds or whatever, like just that sort of open, as opposed to a really opening with like kicking the door down with a song or something like that, it can go either way. And a lot of times it just feels like self-important and an album is kind of, you know, trying to make you feel like it's going to be epic and then it fails to do that. To me, this album delivers on that because what they're trying to do here is epic and dramatic and has a lore to it, even if it's not a through line narrative that goes through the whole album. So, you know, my first thought is I feel like it's it's appropriate here to have an opening like this. The the music itself is is just kind of like this almost like pre-show build-up um sort of thing. I I don't There's know not even that. much actual music there, is there? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it's kind of got this, it's a mood, it's a foreboding, there's a tension there. And uh, again, I feel like it's a promise of of sort of what's to come. And it also sets up for just the great contrast of what you're going to get kind of moving forward. So, so that was my kind of thought listening to it is that like, yeah, these, these sorts of openings, like for a lot of people are very throwaway and also, um, in some ways like pretentious. I mean, but yeah, I, I didn't, I, I don't think of these things as cheesy. Um, but then, you know, I'm also the, the guy who loves the doom metal and stuff. So, which often has, <laughs> you know, opening tracks like this. So that didn't bother me. I, I was actually, if anything, it did feel a bit throwaway because as we said, there's not, that much actual music in it like there's some monks doing a bit of chorus which is quite nice and it does sort of hearken to the uh the old world feeling of that cover artwork yep. um but i actually wish there was a bit more music to it i wish there was more to this and more of a tune frankly um you know it's fine and it does set the scene as you say it sets up like oh okay this is going to be an epic thing that i'm about to listen to but yeah i wish actually that there was more to it well, it's also very quiet. It's really quiet in the mix. <laughs> and, well, I want, and I wonder whether that's deliberate so that you turn it up and then you get blasted by. The I, I was just going to say, I feel like that's intentional on two levels. Number one, um, perhaps so you turn it up so that you get literally punched in the eardrums with the next uh, track that comes on. But also like it, it, it reminds me of like when you're going to see uh, like an orchestra or something like that, and there's like everybody's there's that sort of uh, just ambient, you know, people checking their instruments and everything like that. Mm. And then there's like the tapping of the podium and there's a deep breath there, right? Like it is almost like there, everybody take your seats, everybody kind of, um, you know, lock in and get ready for what you're going to hear coming up. And in that way, I kind of like that. It's not longer. And it's not more involved because it is kind of just like it, a minute and a half is is enough time to put the distractions aside and get ready for what you're about to hear. And I think it does. It's almost like the pulling back of a bowstring because what happens next is so immediately in your face. Like, Well, and here's what's interesting about that. In the music video for In the Court of the Dragon... This is part of it. Right. It opens because it's like a nine minute video altogether, right? right isn't it? it? Op- yeah. Exactly. And it opens with this track as if it was all just part of the same track, which I find an interesting choice. Um, so let's talk about track two then. 
effectively the opening track of the album in the court of the dragon Just an absolute, like I said, punch in the mouth. Bang. <laughs> right at it. I mean, you get the chorus in your in your face, just, and Heafy screaming at you, and it, a it, vicious riff. It, it, well, it's full on, isn't oh, it? Oh, my Drums, God. guitars, bass, and vocals. Like, that's it. As much as you can get in from the band. I mean, it reminds me of Back to the Future where he hits, where Marty hits the strings and the, and the, you know, speakers blow out the entire garage, right? Where <laughs> it's just, that's so metal. You know what I mean? Like it is such a, it's such a great contrast to the, you know, the buildup of the, of the intro where it's just like, boom, it hits you. Um, absolutely brutal. And if this is what we can expect from the rest of this album, it has everything because the chorus is great. And the riff under the chorus is just, it's got a groove to it, but it's nasty. There's so many, like, there's so many like nasty grooves on this album. And like the chorus of this song just absolutely has it. And then it clicks into the verse and it is a brutal breakneck verse where the, it escalates as it gets into the next round of the core, like the next time the chorus comes around, like it, it just has this like breakneck frantic build to the chorus. And I think in this first song, you immediately notice the drums, what the drums are doing here and just absolutely furious, but also like controlling tempo as you go into the chorus and uh, just so, so good. Like a, what a great first true song of an album oh boy do you notice the drums um <laughs> so i have really mixed feelings about this one um because like it is powerful it as you say blasts you in the ears it's a very powerful opener it is hard it's fast it's heavy as hell um but it's not i think there are tracks on this album that actually would have made better openers partly because this track doesn't showcase Healy's clean vocals much at all. I know it does. There's a couple of instances, but sure. you know the core, the verse and the chorus are both harsh, and also he's got two harsh 
styles and this is my lesser favorite um and he's got a really fucking great voice like his clean voice is amazing so powerful and soaring and just really fucking great and yet we barely get to hear it in this track and i think i think that's a that's a shame yeah you know I, i'd have preferred it if say the chorus the proper chorus was clean as well um the drums are too much <laughs> no too much there can never be too much there, there are too many drums <laughs> the, he, like he to is, say that to say that he is an active drummer <laughs> <laughs> it's like he is clearly incredibly talented and he is clearly playing his entire heart out in every song like he absolutely is you know i do not doubt his commitment <laughs> one bit but that's kind of the problem for me and again i don't know whether this is a generational thing but it's kind of this sort of drumming for me is like the equivalent of fret wanking guitarists like yes it has its place but when you do it all the time it just kind of loses its impact and that's i I feel unfortunately there are places in this song where just less drums you know sparser simpler drums would actually have served the song a lot better and would help with dynamics you know i've talked about this before I'm, i'm big on dynamics in songs and stuff and i i think that because the drums are so full on a thousand percent of the drums all the time <laughs> in this song, it just actually kind of, it, it, it fades away a little bit because you, you just sort of blot them out after a while, which I think is a shame. But that aside, I mean, the breakdown in this is fantastic. They have a lot of really good breakdowns on this album. I mean, it's a hundred percent Pantera. R- well, I was going to say the second phrase really gives me massive dime bag vibes it starts holy two crap minutes, 37 dude, in the harmonics yeah yeah the first time i heard it i was like whoa that sounds like dimebag returned from the grave or something that is crazy oh it's got the sludge groove to it like it is so pantera yeah um uh yeah I mean, and it's like the breakdown and the solo and everything they're all good um the end of the middle section after the solo is a good example of one of those places where i think if the drums actually were doing less it would have felt better um instead of going like full-on slipknot just hit every drum at once all the time kind of thing um yeah but overall the structure and the arrangement of this song is is really good um and like i say healy's clean vocals are great there's some lovely riffs the the main verse riff or sorry not verse it's a chorus sorry isn't it the main chorus riff as you say is really just kind of sick that is beautifully like the bends and it's so low and everything, but it's also tuneful and yeah, just really, really good. I, yeah, I just cannot say enough about this song. Like, because I feel like it even, it's such a contrast to the opening and it hits so hard when it first starts. Like it just sets a tone and the whole song feels like a pursuit, you know, where it's just, there's just this breakneck, like, absolute uh desperation frantic just brutal song um of course the title of this song is from the king in yellow by robert chambers and what's interesting about this is i am a huge fan of the king in yellow and 
anytime it is referenced in any media, I get very, very, very excited to see what that reference is going to be. Um, I will never forget when the first season of True Detective uh, yep. <laughs> uh, referenced The King in Yellow. I almost fell out of my chair. I was so excited. And they did a, a great job with it. Um, the, so uh, it, we could spend a whole podcast on The King in Yellow, but I'll, I'll say if you have not checked it out, um, very cool collection of stories. Um, what I love most about The King in Yellow is this idea of like, you don't get all the details. Yeah. It is a thing spoken of that it's the evil that you don't see. It's the things that you conjure in your mind, but it's, it's also about the like forbidden knowledge of like, if you read this play, you're going to go insane and bad things are going to happen. And, uh, it's just like, it, it's so good. I mean, the influence that that had on Lovecraft and so many things that came after and stuff like that. It's uh, anytime the King and yellow gets some love. I'm, I'm very excited about that. Now, what they've said about this is that they sort of took the title of a story from the King in Yellow, and they created their own mythology and their own lore. So when you see the video that was created for this, it has some thematic parallels to some of the stuff in the King in Yellow, but it's definitely their own, which I kind of like that better because the thing about the King in Yellow is like you, the more you try to define it, you're kind of ru- ruining yes. it a little bit. Like it, yep. like it should be, and I like that there can be a million different interpretations of it because the details are so scant in the actual stories themselves. It means that anybody picking it up can have put their own spin on it, and I really, really like that. And so anything that tries to completely mirror exactly what it was trying to do, you're, half of it is guesswork anyways. And so... You know, um, so I like that they alluded to that. They allude to it um, in at least one more place in this um, in this album. But um, yeah, if you're not familiar at all with with the King Yellow, there was a great graphic novel that came out um, a handful of years ago that takes uh, some of the stories. That's really good. You should just read the the short stories, anyways. It's not a, a super long um, collection. And uh, Alan Moore's Providence has some really really good references to yeah. the King in Yellow there. It's um, the, the King in Yellow is like uh, the Kessel Run from Star Wars. Yes, like the Kessel Run that existed in every fan's mind was, you know, they were all like better and more amazing than what was in the Solo movie. And I like the Solo movie a lot more than than many people do, but it could never right. live up to totally, you know, just this offhand reference that immediately made everybody go, "What was that? What's that?" And you know, we've had decades of it living in our imagination, and that's kind of. I, that's a slightly flippant comparison, but it is appropriate because that's what the King in Yellow is like. The whole, 100%. as you say, the whole point of it is that you don't, you get fragments of it. You get little bits. You don't get the whole thing. It's like these people who try to recreate the Necronomicon from Lovecraft, yes. who, yeah, if you like Lovecraft, you should read Chambers. It's that simple, like massive influence. Um, and yeah, people who try to recreate the Necronomicon, you're like, no, 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 the point, <laughs> the whole point is that you never get to see the whole thing because it can only ever be a disappointment. It's, right. You know, it's and, so much more vivid in your imagination. And it's like, to me, um, it's very uh, David Lynch in the sense that the stories like that, that are so open to interpretation are like a painting. And everybody's going to look at that painting and they're going to take something else away from it. Yeah. And some details of that painting are going to be resonate so much with people. And I love to, I actually like to see when people take pieces of the painting and then do their own 
sort of take on that. So I love that they took the title and they create their own mythology about that in, in, um, you know, uh, in Providence, one of the things that I just absolutely loved about the first issue was when you see the exit gardens that are a a riff on the lethal chambers from the repairer of reputations. And just to see like that little piece and be like, wow, I love how that was interpreted for this um, story that's over here. So anyways, I could nerd out about the, the King in yellow. I (laughs) it's freaking awesome. If you're a horror fan, absolutely go back. Um, and you you can, it's it's public domain. You can literally, it's public domain, go to standard eBooks or project Gutenberg, and you can literally read the whole thing for free, you know, or you, I mean, buy a nice printed edition if you want, but I'm just saying it's like, it's not hard to find. It's not long. As you said, like the, you only need to read really the first five, stories i think it is in the in the collection um the, after that they're not really anything to do with the king in yellow anymore um so the first four yeah. or five i think it is yeah it's like it, it, you're looking at a total of maybe like fifty thousand words or something it's you know you can read it in a couple of afternoons yes and certain stories are going to resonate with you more than others and that's that's yeah. awesome but it's, it's it's a really cool collection and um so much of my own like horror writing is based on this uh this figure in these stories and stuff like that and i do love to see i mean there's been great D um you know uh pathfinder did a whole series that of adventures that were that were tied to uh yeah. the king in yellow well, and, and and it was a big influence on the invisibles as well grant morrison's uh yeah magnum opus and yeah it's been a huge influence on loads of people but let's move away (laughs) yes anyway so so, uh, you know go check that stuff out if you're if you're interested but i do like that um even though i didn't see a clear narrative theme through this entire um album so it's not a concept album per se it feels like there's bits and pieces of lore. There, there are definitely repeated things that seem to reference the repeated yes. bits of lore. Yeah, for sure. And I love the idea of them creating their own lore. Because to me, again, that just makes your this work more revisitable. Yeah. Because there's, you know, there's more pieces for you to kind of, um, you know, see through the lyrics or hear in the mood and that kind of stuff. So, but yes, as a, as an opener, as a, First true song on this album. I love it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think there actually are one or two tracks that might have been better openers, but it is still a, a very good track. You know, I'm not. Uh... Oh, well, one last thing I want to say about this song is that um, just the kind of way that the the escalating riff before the chorus, you know, is delivered. It feels very Hetfield downpicking to me. Oh, that could be totally wrong from a musical from a musician standpoint but there is a very stabbing way that that escalation is delivered that I, it just sounds so tight and crisp to me um that i it really stands out to me oh. however they're playing it it definitely um feels it just reminded me of kind of of hetfield a little bit hmm. interesting All right, well, uh, let's move on to track three. That is Like a Sword Over Damocles. Yeah. 
Yeah, now this one you get, I think, this song breathes more. This song is is uh, sort of has a bigger, you know, more epic feel to it and brings you in slower has a good um has a good groove to it i think in the in the main sort of verse riff but it definitely um kind of slows things down a bit to begin with which i think is a nice breather after what you just got you know from in the court of the dragon it, it is definitely a bit of a breather yeah it's also i mean this is probably the catchiest track on the album uh, which is a trick that I've said Paradise Lost actually do quite a lot is, you know, often that track two, I know this is track three, but, you know, it may as well be track two, is often the one that has a really great hook that immediately brings you in after a sort of epic opener. And that is the, you know, the sort of pattern that this follows as well. It's so catchy, such a great chorus, uh, really showcases yeah. uh, his clean vocals as well. Like, you know, he sings it incredibly well um it also the the drums aren't too silly <laughs> on this track like uh right you know there aren't loads of time changes or kind of like overdone blast beats on the verse and stuff the main verse riff actually is pretty great because it's really simple it's incredibly simple but the vocal line over it works really well and contrasts with the the simple riff which is i think very nice um and we mentioned maiden the middle section of this, the first part of the middle section and the solo are really maidenish to my ears. Like yep. really sounds like Agreed. sort of classic era maiden. Um, and then you've even got the keyboards coming in as well, which again, sounds a little bit sort of later era maiden. Um, they, they start in the middle eight, I think, but then they sort of get slowly louder and come to the fore. And then right at the end, you've got that little keyboard flourish even to finish the song, which I really like. That's kind of, I don't think that happens on any other track. Um, but this f- feels like such a... I'm amazed that I don't think this was a single, which blows no, my mind. No, the next song... Um, yeah, no, Feast of Fire was, for sure, yeah. But so yeah. Damocles wasn't. And I'm like, how how could this not be a single? It is such great single material. Yeah, I really and love I it. I think it also points out that these... I mean, these guys do great choruses. Oh, yeah, you know, for sure. They really do great choruses. There's also some blistering bass in this yes. song at certain parts like into to your point which which sounds to me finger picked um just like absolutely and i feel like the bass kind of carries the ba- the back half of the song one thing i notice from these guys is that there are large passages of their songs where without vocals and so whether they're just kind of repeating, uh, you know, certain sections over and over, not to the point where I feel like it wears out its welcome, but I do feel like they give, they give the music like time to shine in a lot of their songs. And I just feel like that's when you can really start to um, hear some of the elements kind of pop even more. And I feel like in in this song, like the the bass in particular to me feels like it really kind of rises to the top as the song goes on. It's a lot more prominent than in the opening track, yeah, for sure. Um, it, it's, it seems higher in the mix, at least in places, uh, and also, as you say, they leave space for you to hear it uh, in a couple of places as well. Yeah, it's just, as I say, I love this track. It is, it's kind of unashamedly, I mean, this, this is how you could give it the new metal label, I suppose, in that you've got this kind of harsh, uh, very fast riffing um, verse, and then this almost pop like chorus 
you know, real proper sing-along chorus, but I love it. I think that's a great, when you do it well, that is a great formula for, for a great song. And that's what this is for me. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes, or a lot of times with new metal, I associate it uh, inverted where it's like the clean verse and the screamed chorus. Oh, okay. Like the harsher chorus, right? Like it would like, to me, that's Linkin Park every song where it's like the, um, you know, the, oh, the, 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 the almost spoken, then, yeah, whether yeah, it's spoken yeah. word or even just more melodic, uh, sort of verses. And then, you know, Chester comes in, in the chorus and with the, the harsher sort of screaming while still melodic, um, vocals here. So I really like the idea of like the, the verse itself being the, you know, the harsh and then the chorus kind of opening up, you know, with the cleaner vocals. I really like that. Yeah. It's- yeah, so there's not much else to say. It's just, it's a really fucking great song. <laughs> and, well, like we said, so let's talk about the next track then. Track four, Feast of Fire. Because this track is very similar in feel, I will say. Not style yep. necessarily, but very similar in feel to uh, like sort of Damocles. And this was a single. And again, you can see why. It is absolutely single material. Like the main riff is a proper headbanger. Like a really, yes. really great riff and rhythm. Um, everybody knows that I'm a sucker for when you drop the guitars out and it's just drum and bass and they <laughs> yep. do that here and it works. And I, I don't care that I'm a sucker for it. It sounds fucking great. Hey, you don't have to be like, but, you, you, it, it's something that you find very satisfying. <laughs> yeah. And I like that to me, this, this, uh, song has a very tool feel oh, to that yeah. baseline. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, elements of like stink fist and eulogy, I think in, in that, um, in that because i at first i was like what is this reminding me of what is this and i'm like oh it's tool and i actually went back and listened to uh, a couple of songs off that album and i was like yes okay this is what that reminds me of and so but i think what i really enjoy about um what they're doing here and this comes in in another song on this album there are times where my context for a song makes it seem like Oh, this song is a lot like this other song that I already know. But what Trivium does, especially on this album, is it always turns into something more that I'm like, oh, I like what they did with the like it could have just they been don't waste opportunities. Yes. Like they could have just like it could have just had that tool vibe to it. And it could have succeeded as a song on that, and it would have been very reminiscent of me for me of that tool song, but then it becomes something else. And I really like how they surprise me 
multiple times on this album with something like, oh, this feels like this. And then it's like, oh, wow, I really like where they went um, with this. And so um, there's two specific, like this was one of them where I'm like, oh, it's kind of cool. And then it's like, boom. Okay, no, this is its own thing. More this than. feels, yeah, it definitely feels more than. Yeah, I mean, the, the drums, again, I think are much better suited on this track. They're a bit more restrained uh, and they work really well. Uh, yeah, as we said, the chorus, it's another, It's. I don't think it's quite as good as Sword of Damocles' chorus, but it, it's pretty close. It's a very, very strong chorus. Um, you know, good sing-along thing. Uh, the breakdown, again, is great. I'm going to say this a lot throughout this album, like a really, really great breakdown. They are very, very good at that. And especially followed by the, the build back up with Healy singing clean, uh, Heafy. Sorry. I keep saying, we keep wanting to say Healy for some reason. Heafy singing clean, uh, is yeah, that's really good when he builds that back up. The only slight letdown in this track for me and why I think Damocles is better is the, at the end, it feels a bit, talking about wasting opportunities, I would have liked another couple of goes round of that final line, the final guitar line. Um, oh, when it comes back in crushing. Yeah. And they only know, do it the very once end. and that's the end yeah. of the song. And I'm kind of, and I can see why I can understand the songwriting sort of reason and thinking behind it, but I would have liked to hear it a couple more times, I think, because it is really good. It's a great riff. And, and it's that contrast it thing that they're that doing point. again. Yeah, where they're where they have you know guitar based drums are all uh, in, in, in that more mellow um, way kind of playing together towards the end, and then there's almost like that pause, and then boom, yeah, they come in with the crushing riff, and then they end it. Yeah, and yeah. Um, as I say, I can I can understand the thinking behind it, but for me, it doesn't quite pull it off. But you know, yeah, no, I can totally see your point about like if they had done that maybe a couple more times, it would have it would have really stuck the landing. But it's still a, it's still a really good track, really catchy. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, not that much else to say about it. It's just, it's a, it's a proper banger. Agreed. And it leads us into track five, A Crisis of Revelation. I mean, there's no. You want to talk about mythology down in this one? <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there's no mid album letdown here. Uh, this song is freaking fantastic, and I love uh, one of the things that really stands out to me is on the chorus where you have, um, you know, those kind of like super harsh vocals against the cleaner vocals, where there's kind of screaming in the background. Uh, you know, like the yeah. take me, betray me, stuff like that. I really like their use of that. That's another place where I feel like they're doing something more 
not then then they have to per se, but like they're it's just those little things where I'm just like it it just adds a little extra punch. It adds they they do a really good job of contrast. And I I find that that's like a running theme through a lot of their stuff is there's that contrast in it. It's uh it's uh I don't know what band I brought it up with in reference to before, but it's that Galadriel, it's Galadriel metal to me, like the beautiful and terrible you know, <laughs> thing where it's like, it's those two things together. Um, you know, the peanut butter and chocolate effect that I really, really like. And they do that so well throughout the album. They do do it really well. I actually don't think it works as well here. I'm not as keen on this track. Um, I don't Ooh, know whether, interesting. I don't know whether I'd go so far as to say a mid album slump because it is still, it's a fine track, but like I, this is one where I like the constituent parts. Like I quite like the verse, especially when they hit that low C or whatever it is on the seventh string. That that really works for me. Um, and the chorus is fine, but the the I'm not convinced that this chorus belongs with this verse. And I know there is that contrast, obviously, but still there has to be some feeling that they kind of go together. And on this track, for me, it, I just don't feel. I don't feel that the verse interesting. I feel like the verse needs to be a bit softer or the chorus needs to be a bit harder for them to, to work, you know, sort of to match. Um, the breakdown on this is the most, I'm talking about this is the most metalcore thing I've heard in years. Like those chords, the slightly discordant chords in the breakdown. I laughed Uh the first time I heard them and not, you know, sort of, not mockingly, but just more kind of like, whoa, I haven't heard chords like that in 15 years, you know? <laughs> um, and the bass on this track is really good. Uh, and he's doing really interesting. We talked about how he's not, Paolo is not a root note bassist. Uh, you listen to what he's doing in the middle section here. And he is I, I wrote, I just furiously wrote playing. At 3.30, bass with like 50 S's <laughs> on the end of that. Like, <laughs> that, was my note, that was my note in the song. Yeah, he is absolutely doing like furious things uh, during the middle section of this song, um, just playing his heart out. But yeah, as I say, for me, this one, it's fine, but it just doesn't quite work as well as some of the similar uh, contrasting tracks on this album. There's also a part, at like th- I think it's around three minutes in, where like the the lead guitar plays a phrase and then the rhythm guitar makes that its its rhythm like after it's played one time, oh, right. the rhythm guitar adopts it. And I really liked that um, because what the rhythm guitar was doing up until that point was, was fine. And then the different. lead plays that phrase. And then the rhythm guitar picks up that phrase, like moving forward. And I thought that was really cool. Nice. All right. Well, let's move on to track six, the shadow of the abattoir. Looking in 
maybe the best song in the album for me. It, it's a contender, isn't it? It is a contender. <sighs> this is the first of the three songs on the album that are over seven minutes long. I find it really interesting that they wait until halfway through the album to pull out the first really long song, considering that there are three of them. But I think it was probably the right move. Agreed. Uh, because I kind of feel like you have to already be into the album before you you get hit with something that is a bit epic like this. Yes. A hundred per- I could not agree more with that because they have shown you to this point, they've covered all their bases. They have shown you thrash. They have shown you uh, groove. They have shown you brutality. They have shown you harsh and clean vocals. Like they've given you all the pieces to this point that there is nothing for you to mistrust when they start on this yes. epic. I was going to say it's about trust. Exactly. They've, you, they have earned your trust completely, completely by this time. And so you're like, Ooh, where are we going here? The, I mean, this is the first time we hear clean guitars as well. I mean, and it's beautiful. Right. And they're really good. It yeah. is. <laughs> but that's, they're so good. The bass is so good. The drums are not overdone, The but just that melody. But uh, uh, and, isn't uh, the clean guitars, that's always a sign that you're going to get an epic, isn't it? Oh, it's 100%. It's such a cliche. I mean, it works. I'm not knocking it, but it is such a cliche. You hear the clean guitars and you're like, oh, here it comes. Here comes the epic. <laughs> but this is one of many times where I kept going back to this this idea well actually let's talk about the song first and then remind me to go back to the (laughs) to go back to that concept because it brought it it made me really think about a bigger um conversation but here what i love about this to go back to the whole uh king and yellow reference here um not that this song is is particular in reference to that but there's an element of forbidden knowledge to this like the Mm. the one of the things I love about not just the King Yellow, but about like cosmic horror in general is this idea of like, be careful what knowledge you're seeking. Curiosity you know, killed ca- the cat. A hundred percent. Like when you, there are things that you should not know and there are paths that you should stay away from. And if you, if you refuse logic and go down those paths and then what you're going to find is going to be and here like the abattoir meaning uh slaughterhouse just like the 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 whole chorus here is a warning right don't go searching for the battle you won't find any beast to slay you'll rip yourself to pieces you'll drive yourself insane in the shadow of the abattoir like so good it's a fucking great um, chorus isn't it <laughs> oh my god and and you know what I, th- I don't think we've given them to this point we haven't talked a ton about lyrics but in general really good lyrics yeah i wouldn't put them quite i wouldn't give them like an a plus grade i think there are moments yeah, i mean they're no typo negative anthony i get it but um <laughs> i think there are moments like the, this chorus here is and in not, not just the chorus actually there's a line in one of the verses where is it uh Look in envy at the dead. They took pity, as they said. I mean, that's just, that's a fucking great couplet. <sighs> so that good. Is, I feel like he knows what he has like, in this song. Look in envy at the dead? Oh, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so there are moments where the lyrics are absolutely great. And I, you know, in parts, there are parts that I would give that A plus grade for sure. But there are other parts where, like, the sound of vocals is important. 
Like, it, you know, it's not just the words, it is how they sound. And there are places on this album, some parts of the songs, where the sound of the words just doesn't quite gel for me. It doesn't quite flow, uh-huh. doesn't quite work. But compared to some metal bands, <laughs> they are generally good lyrics. Yes, they are thoughtful and considered and there's a lot of them as well like every song has a lot of lyrics um one of the notes i made on on this song is this is the epic drama i'm talking about like this is the promise of the opening the the you know how the album opens right and here we get it and it delivers so freaking much um just the the main you know mournful melody of the song is really great the the bass the kind of rolling bass is so good um it takes you on that journey like it's really good um and then of course you know things get dark and they get sinister and there's you know from the depths i will rise from the ground to the sky and then 340 we're you know we we shift into thrash mode um a very sort of almost um, disorienting solo, the way the solos played in the song, but then of course comes back to that main melody, and and it all serves, I think, to like build that drama throughout the song, and just the the way that uh, the way that the final um, you know, chorus part is delivered where he sit, comes in high and sings snow covers every path, yeah. stumbling, no turning back. Like the fact that those are delivered at that higher range and then they go back into the regular chorus vocals of you'll rip yourself to pieces, you'll drive yourself. Like, I just thought that was such a beautiful well, touch. And that that snow covers every path at the end, that's a callback to the very first two lines. Which he delivers so low. Right, yeah. And that's uh, that's another thing I was going to point out about this track. It really showcases how versatile his voice oh, is. absolutely. Like, you know, we've said, yeah, he's got good harsh vocals and he, you know, sings really well in the chorus, but also just the versatility of it. You wouldn't necessarily expect a metal singer to be able to kind of croon almost the way I he does these lyrics, wrote, you know? I wrote, love the low vocals to begin with. Low range is often not valued enough. Yeah. Keefe is so freaking good on this song. <laughs> that was the note it, that it I made really to myself. It really is a tour de force of his vocals, yeah. And of Ugh. everything, yeah. I mean, it's great songwriting, great arranging. It's got lots of, you know, different parts that need to be put together, but they're all put together very well. They're all arranged very well. Uh, obviously, it's, you know, played brilliantly. Like we say, there's no, there's never any question that they're incredibly uh, talented and skilled musicians. Yeah, it's, as you say, it's a contender for best track of the album in, to the point where I might have put this track at the end. I might have made this the final track. Can you imagine this as an album closer? Especially, I would not argue with that one bit. Like with that final line where he extends his vibrato as the guitars ring out. Imagine that being the last thing you hear on this album. Holy it shit. It is truly an epic. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, just absolutely, there's not even a question of whether it justifies its length. I mean, it, it, it and I would argue the fact that it's seven minutes and 11 seconds when many bands would have made this 10 minutes long. And That's true. Yeah. watered it down. And overstate its welcome, like 
can we can we make epic seven minutes long now? Can we can we establish that rule in music now? If you're gonna <laughs> oh. if you're gonna write if you're gonna write your epic and you thought it was gonna be ten minutes, I want you to dial it down to seven, and I want you to deliver it like this. One of the things that I loved about this is a total digression, but it is related. One of the things I loved about Paradise Lost's evolution in the late nineties was they learned over the course of several albums to write tracks that felt like you had been to the end of the world and back in like three and a half minutes. Yep. That is so hard to do. And they got so fucking good at it. And it's one of the reasons that I love that period of the band because every track feels like this massive epic. And then you look at the runtime and you're like, it's three minutes long. How do they do that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's like tightly editing your own work, right? Where you, where you, you know, you don't want to cut anything because it's your baby. Right. But at the same time, like to get it to a place where it feels like it justifies every second that it occupies, um, it just makes it such a more powerful work that sticks with you for such long. And this is a song that like, just, I I agree with you. I think it would make a good closer because I feel like it makes such a strong impression that it stays with you for the rest of the album. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely Um, true. It's like actually hard to put aside and move on to the next song. Although, because although the next song does a really good job of agreed of, of doing that of putting it aside and like you know being a palate cleanser so let's move on to that that is track seven no way back just through I mean, this to go back to songs, uh, what was it, four and five? Um, or, yeah, three and four, like uh, Sword of Damocles, Feast of Fire. We're back in that, um, you know, we're we're just back in that sweet spot of four minutes. Well, even more so, um, this is the shortest track on the album. Oh, I didn't even realize mm. that. Yeah, this is the shortest track on the album after one of the longest tracks on the album, which, again, very, very smart. A good, like, like we said, palate cleanser um massively catchy like so, a super catchy great chorus um what a great groove riff to open agreed. as well the verse is really like fast and aggressive the pre-chorus builds nicely and then what may possibly be the best chorus on the album and there are a lot of contenders on this album for that crown like the, you know like we've said they are really good at writing choruses but this chorus may be the best one can you imagine this live how good would this chorus be live with the whole crowd singing along because i'm sure that's what happens well and again you know here's this band that they've 
they just keep showing you like they can do whatever. Like they can they can do all of this, right? They can do a seven minute epic. They can do a thrash song. They can do a Pantera groove, and they can do an anthemic crowd pleasing three minute pop metal song. Sing along, a hundred percent, dude. That can be. They can give you a radio single on an album where there are songs that you would never imagine would ever be on the radio. And so, like the fact that they can do that, to me, um. There, it, with and this, this wasn't a single album, again. And I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but like with this album, we are in Metallica Black Album territory. Oh, that's I, the that's... kind of stuff they're doing here. Oof. They're do- and and no, with without even bringing my opinion on the Black Album into that, but that's the kind of thing that they're showcasing here. The ability oh, that they can do to anything. Do, yeah. Yes. And the ability to, on the same album, and what they're doing here is they're giving you, now we have at least three songs here that could be radio singles, right? They're giving you that because that makes this, and not because of this, but what that does is makes this album completely accessible to someone who is not uh, maybe necessarily attracted to the harder, thrashier, more complex, more proggy elements of any of that stuff you're you've given them several on ramps to this band now and then in this same album you're giving them iron maiden epics at the same time and you're giving them pantera and thrashy kind of grooves like this is that kind of album that becomes the gateway to a band for a huge huge audience of listeners i i feel like so that's i'm I'm continually impressed by what they're doing on this album because they're they're inviting a lot of audiences to like this album. Yeah, and showcasing versatility again. As Absolutely. You say. Yeah. I mean, the the even the solo here, the like the, compared to like a lot as we said, they do a lot of long instrumental sections on this album. There are yep. lots of middle sections that are quite long and have like three or four parts to them. This one, no. <laughs> It's like there's about 16 bars of middle eight and a solo, and then it's done, and then it's back to the. But chorus. like I, <laughs> I have a friend who I grew up with who uh, does not like harsh vocals at all. This is an album that I could give him, and he would like this album. Ah, uh, right. Okay, actually, that's a point that I brought up earlier, and this track's a great example. His vocals on the chorus, sorry, on the verse here, yep, are not clean but they are not the sort of standard death growl, if you like. Absolutely. You know, they yep. are more of a sort of natural, harsh vocal, and I really like them. I wish he did that more. Yep. I much, much prefer that sound. Now, I read that Heafy apparently had massive vocal problems a few years back. I read that too. Uh, yep. And like literally blew his voice out during a gig and had to start taking, you know, professional voice coaching lessons and stuff to the point where now, not only is he fully recovered, but he actually says that he's got more range and more power and his uh harsh vocals the harsh vocals style that he does now is actually more comfortable for him sometimes than singing clean um so i don't want to sort of i don't want to discount that and take that away from him but this style of more natural harsh vocals which presumably is not as easy for him to do but i think it sounds so much better i like it so much uh and when you combine that with yeah, the great chorus here. This is just in and of itself. This is a track you could give to people 
who, yeah, might not be into... It's a gateway track, right, for sure. Might not be into the harsh vocals and the really thrashy stuff. Um, and, like, go, oh, yeah, okay, actually. Or the blast beat stuff, I should say. And they could listen to this and go, oh, fucking hell, yeah, that's great. Yep. The double-tracked vocal. I think it's double-tracked anyway. It's either that or it's him and, you know, uh, the backing vocals tracked at the same time. But at the end of the final verse where everything, like even the drums, finally drop out. <laughs> and it, yeah. and it's just his voice. As I, say, I think it's him double-tracked, but I'm not sure about that. Singing, surrounding you. And then, you know, back into the chorus again. Brilliant. Yep. That's what I mean about dynamics. That is... You know, that is a, a everybody in the crowd jumps up and lands at the same time kind of moment, you know? Yeah. And and again, <clears throat> to go back to the idea of like how many, how much this album is offering, like if you're going down the list of things that you want to, things that really make a deep, complete, robust, dynamic album, like they're, they're eventually checking all those boxes as we get through, you know, yeah. as we get through these songs. And so it goes back to like the building trust, but also like building appreciation for how much ground this band can cover. The, and the you lo- know, this album for me is, is a revelation of tri- like, I n- never imagined that trivium was this band. Right. Right. The, the last thing I'll say about this track is that this is one of the ones that I think they could have opened with. I think this could oh, have been. Yeah. Imagine going from this track into Court of the Dragon. A lot. What a one-two punch that would be. That would be amazing. Yeah. yeah no, I could totally see that. Um, but let's move on then to track eight. Fall into your hands. gojira like to open oh. this song you know it's got that sort of dreamy ethereal quality to that, it that's kind of that's funny because my note about the opening is that says that if not for the drums it would sound really doomy like oh, with those okay. repeating guitar phrases well i did i did also note it has a beautiful and haunting main melody so i think definitely it fits that too but it definitely had like this ethereal um quality to me this is the longest track on the album, 7 minutes 46. Um, but it's another one that, it doesn't feel nearly 8 minutes long. Uh, you know, it doesn't outstay its welcome at all. And this is one where I think you, you've got that same massive contrast between the chorus and the verse, but this is one where I think they do fit together much better. Um, and what a contrast. Well, it is. But <laughs> so here's my problem with this track. 
I just, I think they fit well together. Like I say, the verse and the chorus, I just don't actually like them all that much. <laughs> well, I think the chorus of this song doesn't live up to that contrast. Like it's beautiful. The the melody right. is beautiful, but I feel like the chorus itself isn't as strong as the harsher elements of the song. Like that's not, it's not a perfect balance. And so it just doesn't hit the highs of something like, um, you know, uh, shadow of the abattoir, you know, hits in that. Like it, I really like the song. I actually feel like it does justify its, its length in it. Um, and I think it's got a lot of great elements to it, but to me, the chorus is kind of the weak point, which is interesting because the chorus, um, the whole fall into your hands thing is uh, a reference to the King in Yellow. Oh, that's the reference. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's a reference to In the Court of the Dragon, and it is, uh, the quote is from the end of that story, and it says, uh, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Ah, and that is the callback to, um, it, so it's been a long time since I read King in Yellow. I waxed lyrical about it earlier and I do love it, but it's been, a, I know I forgot to reread it <laughs> before doing this episode. So I'm glad you did. <laughs> As did, well, I forgot to reread it. I went and looked back at a couple of things, but I actually, um, this morning pulled the graphic novel off oh, my right. <laughs> uh, thing. And I, I usually read that like once a year and I haven't read it in a while. And so, um, but I now want to go back and, and revisit it again because it's, it's got so many great lines in it. Um, so I thought that was cool that they yeah. that they brought that back. And I do really like the the thrashy, just nasty, and combine that riff, not only in such contrast to the melody of this song, but also with the screamy, you know, uh, harsh vocals of Heafy. I think that's to me the standout element of this song. So. Here, this is such a a weird song because here's how I would improve this song. I would take the section between 308 and 540 and get rid of everything else. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Because when he shouts go at three minutes and eight seconds, it basically becomes an entirely different song. For the next two and a half minutes, like nothing that we've heard before is repeated again. And it's not yep. just a middle eight, because there are lyrics. There are whole verses and repeated, what, you know, semi-choruses here. And yet it's just completely different to the rest of the song. And in my opinion, it's a much better <laughs> part of the song. I like that section a lot and a lot more than the beginning and ending sections. So, yeah, I would just take that section out of the middle and call that the song. Um, and that, to me, would be much, much improved. <laughs> okay i don't know that i agree with that whole cloth but i do agree that it is like an entirely different song and um if you're gonna make an argument that this song doesn't necessarily justify its length you can you could make it on that i think whether you just want to keep that section or you want to get rid of that section like either way well, um i think it justifies it in the sense that the song doesn't feel like it drags at any point right like i do agree i do feel that i'm I'm not saying that the song you know i get halfway through and think oh god are you over yet or what not at all um you know if if i hadn't looked at the timings i probably wouldn't have actually guessed that this was the longest track on the album um but yeah as i say it just that that first thing just doesn't work for me one thing i love is that after they do the first verse 
instead of going into the chorus, they do they, a verse again. They do a verse again. That, and it's like doubling down on the brutality. And I love that. But that's a pop song arrangement. Song, songs do that all the time. We just don't hear it that often anymore for some reason in metal music. And I'm not sure why. I'm not sure if it's an anti-pop thing or what. But that's actually, that, that used to be really common in, in rock, metal, pop, all manner of, you know, uh, oh, for sure. Genres. But I think what makes it work so well here is because that is so harsh compared to the melody. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. Like the yeah. contrast is so that you're, there's this anticipation of you're waiting for the melody to come back in and you get harsh again. And that, that contrasting that they're playing, like, that's where I feel like in it, it, you know, they're taking something, as you just said, that is not new per se, but the choices that they make of when to do that and with what song to do that and with what, you know, contrast that they're playing with, I think more often than not, their choices pay off. Mm. One thing I do really like about this song, actually, outside of that middle section, is the synth string ending. Um, yeah. Especially because it ends unresolved as well. It ends on an up note uh, rather than the root, which is always a nice little trick. Um so yeah, that, that's that's one nice little bit that I do like. But let's move on. Track nine, From Dawn to Decadence. minutes of mayhem right here i mean you you again get you know they know what they're doing in terms of like track layout where seven minutes 45 seconds and then like here's a four minute punch in the face like it's uh, it it feels like this is and also like here's your breath before we finish with another long yes song to finish the album so i love the placement of this um this song you know I think has a great groove to it. The, I think the chorus is fantastic. Um, I like, you know, just the, the, again, this is like a, this sort of panicked, frantic um, pursuit thing. Like there's a, there's a lyric in here, run away so far away. I can't outrun what is coming for me. Um, and just like, I think the chorus is amazing on this song. It, it is another great chorus, yeah. I love that the opening sounds like, almost sounds like you're going to get another epic, but then it gets really like fast and heavy. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I've my notes literally just say another fantastic chorus. <laughs> what more yeah. is there to say? It is, I love the rhythm of this chorus as well. Like it's, you know, not that it's innovative necessarily, but it's not one we hear often 
on this particular album. They don't use that rhythm a lot uh, throughout the rest of the album. So it's nice to have that kind of feel to and it. And I love the the little bass drum gallops that he does like during the chorus. Yes. Like I just, I he just, this is a song that I think that the drums really, he makes great choices with them uh, yeah. on this. And I love the build back up from the middle section here where you've got Heafy doing the sort of, that, that quiet distortion singing of the chorus, which again yep. is a bit of a cliche, but but it works. But it works. Yeah, it works. Yep. I love it. As long as it works. It's, it's a great build back up. And then, yeah, you know, repeat the chorus three times, golden. Um, and just the chorus, just for anybody, like lyrically, it, it's like all we need and all we want just withers on the vine with all we love. It's like all we need and all we want just withers on the vine from dawn to decadence. Like, good. that's a good... It's a good chorus lyric. It, it really is. Although that very last line where they sing the title of the song is a good example, I think, of how the sound doesn't quite work. Like, you know, they are good lyrics, but the the way it ends there just isn't quite, it doesn't quite flow. It feels a little bit spiky and a little bit unnatural. Um, spiky, I think is the right term, right? Because when you look at just the, just like phonetically how, um, withers on the vine with all we love is a smoother. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, withers on the vine from dawn to decadence yeah. like that. It is spikier. Just the, just the words yeah. themselves. I, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So as I say, I mean, like I said, I'm not knocking them per se. It's a choice and you know, it, it's how the band sounds, but it, it's one of the things that's for me stops the lyrics from just quite achieving, you know, that, uh, a sort of perfection grade. Sure. Yep. But it, yeah, another good song, another short palette cleanser, as we said, uh, leading into the final track, track 10, the phalanx. Which, this is a great example of what I was talking about earlier, and it brought to mind Metallica again in terms of like what they're doing as a whole on this album, but also how they are building on my frame of reference. Because when this song starts, I'm thinking Sad But True. Oh. And, which is a song that I cannot stand. Whereas I um, love it. <laughs> I can't, I hate that song. And so, uh, and part of it is just because it's so played out in my mind that I just, my eyes roll as soon as I hear that song. But what they do with that and where they build from that, they could have just did a, they could have just done a sad but true. 
Like they could have the how this song starts and like the the you know just the main sort of rhythm there, dun, 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 dun. like they could have just done that and the song would have been fine and it would have maybe not been the best song to end with on the album. And so the fact that they go beyond that is a thing I appreciate about this band is like, there's clearly influences that they're pulling from in these things, but they're not resting on it. Right. They're building on it. And I like that. And so we said that about orbit culture as well. Remember, because there are clear influences and Metallica influences again there, but again, you know, they don't actually sound like those bands. They're just pulling those influences and then, you know, putting them through their own filter, which is what a good band does. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've said a couple of other tracks might be better final tracks uh, on this album, but which might make you think that I don't like it, but I do. I do like this track a lot. Um, The opening is really, yeah, really epic. I mean, it's almost symphonic, that opening, which kind of sets the stage a for a good long track with several movements which this has but also for the way the track ends because it really does get quite symphonic uh towards the end the the chorus the chorus is a weird one for me like musically i really like it uh it is big it's epic it's got those big keyboards underneath but lyrically it's another one where the sound of the words doesn't quite flow like it could it just sort of falls down a little bit but musically and you know the sort of vocal melody i think are great um uh what else have i got here oh the middle eight where they <laughs> they practically turn into slipknot in the middle eight yeah. that low bend yes. when he sings decay that oh man <laughs> i love it yeah so i and i also feel like shades of pantera there too right yes, and yes. and um so definitely that definitely the metallica feel in the beginning but also maiden-esque I feel like, um, so again, like, I I feel like maybe it's just because of the epicness of it. Like when I think epic, I always think Maiden. Right. Because I feel like Maiden does epic for traditional metal bands almost better than anyone else. I mean, they practically invented Um, it for trad metal bands, didn't they? Yeah. And so if if there's an epic feel to it, like I'm almost always drawn to Maiden, especially if there's an epic feel to it and the band is, is, uh, technically proficient. I always have this idea of Maiden, you know, in in my head. And so to me, it was like, it started with a feel of Maiden and Metallica and then Pantera jumped in halfway through. And, but again, taking these things I know and taking my expectations and, and um, moving in a different direction, which is what I appreciate. Like the song continues to challenge what I'm anticipating is going to happen. Yeah. Have you seen the music video to this? I don't think I have. So this song was chosen, apparently, so here's a funny thing to start with. This song was actually, apparently, the sort of bones of it were left over from, I think. I heard that. I think Matt Heavey said the Shogun Shogun Recessions, which is like four albums previous or something, or maybe not that many. But but it was also, and I'm not sure exactly what happened. I didn't read the details of it, but there is some connection. It was somehow licensed or there was a partnership with uh, Elder Scrolls with this track so the video is half of them playing in that hangar and half like a sort of animated scene from elder scrolls how do i not know this i literally (laughs) like oblivion is one of my favorite games of all time it is so Um, 
I mean, it's good. It works, but it is so unexpected. You watch it, you go, hang on a minute. That's like. Well, then, but then when you think about like the Twitch channels and, exactly. the, and the, so clearly, um, you know, the gaming connection there, which I think is great. Well, they, um, they are, the band clearly are gamers themselves. I don't think there's, uh, you know, I mean, Corey, like I say, does literally Twitch get, uh, stream games. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure I remember reading that, you know, all of the band just because it, again, generational thing, you know, to you and me, we are gamers because. Not everybody in our generation plays video games, whereas people, you know, 15, 20 years younger, they're just like, that just is. Gaming is just yeah. like watching TV or watching movies. It's just or, like anything else. Right, it's just yeah. another thing that you do in your leisure time. Um, so I think there's clearly that connection there. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's a good video as well. <laughs> it's like, it works, but it was so bizarre watching it. It was like, hang on a minute, what? And that's when I read about this partnership that they've got. Yeah, it's very strange. Um but yeah, it's a good track. Like I say, it's not. So I love the ending. I think it's got. A, I do too. It's really nice, big, like I say, almost symphonic ending. It builds up from the guitar phrase, the lyrics repeating. It's all getting sort of bigger and louder and harder. Um, there are some synth string stabs. Try saying that ten times when you're drunk. Um, that punch through. Which is again like I've done it. My it's such a cliche that I have even I have done this <laughs> on tracks that I've done. Let alone you know a band like them. Um, but again, it works. It really kind of just builds up the anticipation and builds and builds and builds, and then they kind of blow it. I think like the last lines. It doesn't. The music doesn't end with the big bang that I was anticipating, or oh, okay. or, or a big enough bang anyway. Uh, for me, um. And then, like, the final uh, chorus that Heafy sings, it just kind of, I don't know, I, I would have liked him to do it differently, given that the music has dropped out at that point, you've just got the guitars ringing. I would have liked him to maybe drop and do it in that lower voice or something instead. Uh, so it's kind of, it's a shame, because it builds up to this great ending and then just doesn't quite land for me. Um, it did land for me. I, I thought that it was a good, uh, I feel like the ending of it is epic and I like it as a finishing song. And I find it super interesting that this is like a song that was not left over, quote unquote, but that it is a song that at least the bones of it, as you said, were from a previous time Yeah, that they were able to fit it into this album and make it feel like it belongs on this album and doesn't feel totally out of place on this album and also serves as a good closer. Um, so I like it. And, and I think it does definitely justify its seven minute length. And so again, you got three songs on this album that are over seven minutes long. And I feel like all of them manage to deliver. Um, and it makes me want to start the album over again, which is my number one right sort of, threshold for whether or not an album you know makes a good closer so yeah i do i like the song at the end um you know of the seven minute epics that they have i feel like you know um shadow of the abattoir is clearly the standout yeah the standout of those but to have three seven plus minute songs that are actually good on an album is pretty impressive yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, for all that I, you know, the complaints that I have about it, uh, it is still a good track and it absolutely justifies its length. You know, it doesn't feel like it drags at any point. Um, and it is at least good that they put 
something that has that epic build, you know, and a kind of a crescendo at the end of the album. Uh, I think that, you know, that was a good, a good and sensible choice. Um, it's just, as I say, you know, overall it didn't, it didn't quite land for me, but really it's, it, see, like, so I've complained about a few things on this album, obviously, but I, I really do like it. And I kind of, I'm, I'm complaining kind of because this album could easily be like a proper nine out of 10 for me. Yeah. You know, it, it really could, but there are those few areas where it just falls a bit too short um, that don't, you know, that, that means it's not, unfortunately. Um, and that's, that's kind of why I complain because I'm like, oh, you're so close. <laughs> you're so close. If yeah. only, but what it has done is convince me that I was right. Like, yes, this is a band that I should have got into years ago. Uh, and I am now going to go and listen to their back catalog for sure, because I know people have said, some people have said this is their best album ever. And lots of people have said, oh, they spent years in the wilderness and now they're back to form. But still, you know, if even some of their previous albums are as good, as, as deep and as well constructed as this and have, you know, choruses and riffs that are as catchy as this, then I suspect I'm going to like a lot of what I hear. I went back and listened to Ascendancy yesterday. And I thought I made some notes about it. Um, but so to kind of echo what you're saying, th- this album has made me a fan of this band. This album has made me realize that I need to go back and check out their entire back catalog and figure out what their journey was to get to where they're at here. Because as I mentioned before, I think what they're doing here is in the realm of where Metallica got to with Black. Um, yeah. where you're doing, you know, you, you are, you're walking that line, um, of being able to satisfy people who have grown up with you and also bring in people who may not have traditionally thought that they were, you know, uh, fans of your sound or whatever. And what I noted about, uh, Ascendancy, which was from 2005, is that the aggression was there, but the vocals were not as polished. I think Hefe is progressed tremendously as a vocalist. Uh, and I think just production wise and, and sound wise, it, it wasn't as crisp and it, so it didn't feel as heavy right? and the contrast, not as strong. Um, and I felt overall that the musicianship has been great all along and was great on that album. It just was a little less focused. And so I'll be interested to hear what you think of some of their earlier stuff it made me want to go back and listen to all their backs. So ascendancy is great. Um, but just this feels like the evolved version of trivium that we're hearing on this album. Yeah. I like, it's like, I mean, I guess I'm a trivium fan now. <laughs> so I'm definitely you know, a trivium fan. Yeah. yeah. As I say, it's, it's, I'm kind of annoyed at myself because Same. for years, you know, I kept hearing about this band and Pete and some people, not everybody, you know, they have their detractors, but you know, enough people kind of gave me the impression that I might like them. And then I, and I just never got around to really giving them a fair shake and actually listening to a full album and, and all that. And I wish I had, because yeah, like I say, if their back catalog is anything at all like this, I think I am going to like this band a lot. I did not have someone evangelizing them to me at any point in the last 20 years. So I feel like I just kind of 
maybe felt like they fell into the new metal category and didn't really pay much attention to them because there were other bands in that category that I wasn't, you know, um, a huge follower of. And so I just kind of missed them. And I saw these guys actually with Megadeth and, and Lamb of God back in September of 21. And they played uh, in the Court of the Dragon and Feast of Fire off of um, off of that album. But they were still, they kind of, and I read this from Hefe, they were kind of touring two albums at the same time. So their set right. lists were kind of like a 50-50, um, you know, set list going on. But this is a band now that I will be paying attention to when they are coming around. And obviously following their new stuff and i did i went on twitch this morning and followed matt heafy just so i can because i want to see more of like what is he doing sure. um i i thought i read that they did a series on twitch where they played deep cuts off of their like stuff they never play live they were playing off of their previous albums and stuff so like oh, that type that's of, a really good use for something like twitch right yeah. and so it's that type of innovative stuff that gets me excited about what they're doing and what they're going to do um, moving forward. So really excited to continue to follow them and also explore 10 albums of, you know, nine other albums of songs from them and really kind of figure out how they got to where they are today. I did see, I did watch a few briefly because again, I was, I was deliberately trying not to expose myself too much to their earlier stuff, but I did watch a couple of brief, uh, you know, recordings of, uh, gigs um they are tight live yeah like holy cow um yeah so i i have not seen them live but i i would based on that because they were you know not that they were replicating what sounded like anyway they were replicating you know everything note for note from an album but just they were tight and heafy sounded great like you know he can do this live as well which is absolutely, as we know, not always the case <laughs> with metal singers. <laughs> well, and to go back to what you were talking about earlier, the fact that he essentially had to retrain himself how to sing. Yeah, right. And I feel like that happens a lot with a lot of these harsh it, vocalists, right? It like does. they You'd get think into they'd the learn business by now. But it's like they just get into the business and they're doing it, and they find some success, and so it's not like they have the time to go back. And then at some point, they go through professional training or they relearn how to do that. And to a person, every time I've read an article with an interview, they're like, oh, yeah, this is so much easier now that I'm doing it the correct way, um, you know, than, than it's ever been before. Right. And like I've, and so, but clearly, I mean, his vocal range on this album is just very impressive. Actually, do you know what that reminds me of? Total tangent, but that reminds me of there was a post, I think, from Christopher Powell on the Facebook group yesterday to a video of Manowar playing live. Uh, and he was, basically pointing out that Eric Adams is like 70 and yet he does not look or sound like a 70 year old man. Like he, his voice even live now is incredible. Um, and that's because Eric Adams through right from the start was properly trained. You know, he yes, like, he says, uh, uh, I just pulled it up. Christopher Powell. It was that him that posted. He says, Eric Adams is not normal. <laughs> he still sounds this good at 70 years old. Yes. 70. Uh, years of classical training and a lifetime of lifting and proper nutrition has certainly paid off. You don't carry around this amount of muscle mass at 70, I mean, it, it, unless you've been hitting the gym most of your life. And it's true. If you look at the video, like, that man has got guns, like, that you would not normally see I'm in a 70-year-old man. The <laughs> still on here, and he's got freaking huge guns. Yeah. But that also reminds me of Bit Byford. Right, like, yeah, I mean, also sounds who great. Who is also 70 yeah. years old. 
Um, they just released a new album, Carpe Diem. Sounds great on the album. Um, he just showed up on the Amon Amarth album that just came out. Oh, right. Um, because there's a song called Saxons and Vikings, and I did not know <laughs> that he was guesting on this album. Oh, and If you've got a song called that, I mean, how? Dude, which came first? Let you know? me tell you something. <laughs> the smile, I gasped when I heard him. I had no idea that he was on the album. And when that song hit, the smile on my face, <laughs> I was like, this is awesome. And uh, what I love about Amon Amarth is they're not afraid to embrace the cheese, even though... Yeah. They have very, you know, aggressive vocals and, and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, good stuff there. But anyways, yeah, it, it is, uh, it's awesome to see vocalists that have been successful, like, find a way to, well, to do it without keep killing their voice healthy, do yeah. it without killing themselves, you know, because it, it is, I mean, it takes such a toll on you. So Absolutely. Well, you've only got to listen to, you know, if you listen to any, um, uh, if you watch any videos of Motorhead towards the end of their career like lemmy was no longer the vocalist that he oh i mean I'll, that he I'll once throw, was not, you know not that uh, mustaine's ever been an amazing vocalist but yeah to nowadays i mean that i've seen them more than any other band that i've seen who i'm a fan of and it is not you know right it's not great now so um, if there are any you know young vocalists listening out there for god's sakes go and get training get take classes yeah <laughs> learn how to use your instrument and preserve it properly absolutely you know and then it will serve you your whole life until you're 70 years old singing man of war songs in cyprus or wherever the hell that video was <laughs> absolutely uh, all right so that is uh trivium i have a feeling this might wind up being our longest episode ever i'm saying that before well we got into a couple of big conversations there <laughs> did, so um but i'm glad because this album brought those yeah. up and, and just to put a, a bow on that like i do think that this could be for trivium that album that is uh a breakout a breakout another for breakout, them for yeah. sure i mean it's done well I, th- I think i looked at the charts um did i paste any of those notes in here i might have chart wise it looks like they hit number 20 on the uk albums chart uh number one on the uk rock and metal albums chart uh 71 on the billboard 200 um, they hit number three on the U.S. Top Hard Rock Albums and number eight on the U.S. Top Rock Albums, yeah. both Billboard um, things. So, yeah, critically acclaimed. I mean, as you said, nines and tens, you know, almost universally for this album from those that, that are uh, given out scores. And so glad we talked about it. I thought this was an awesome suggestion, and I was super happy because I really, really love this album. Yeah. Um, I've just, suddenly <laughs> I was looking at those charts on the Wikipedia page, uh, and then I happened to scroll down to the bottom. They've done, they have four cover songs attributed to them. If you look down in the sort of trivium link box at the bottom and two of them uh-huh. are Iron Maiden songs. Not surprising. So there you go. <laughs> Not surprising at all. All right. So before we get to the homework, uh, I will say to everyone out there, thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, please do remember to spread the word, tell your friends, rate us on iTunes and the Google Play Podcast Store and wherever you rate these things. And you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to support us directly by making a pledge and help fund the show and keep us going. Uh, if you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to email and Twitter. And you can, of course, join our lovely Facebook group uh, at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out uh and share us with us your videos of 70 year old metal singers singing in cyprus and flexing their guns 
<laughs> so, homework, next episode. Mr. Brian, well, what are we going to do? I've had anniversaries on my mind, Anthony, because, you know, uh, I don't know if we mentioned it in our last episode where Torin was on with us, which was extremely well-received by everybody. Talk about Facebook group that had a ton of comments on that episode. People really enjoyed it. Um, but in July, we celebrated our seventh anniversary, mm-hmm. which is mind-boggling. Uh, you just mentioned that we hit our 75th episode, which is worthy of uh, celebration. And in September, it is going to be the 30th anniversary of what many people feel is a landmark album, and also from a band that a lot of people have been waiting for us to talk about on this show. So we are going to talk about the 1992 album Dirt from (laughs) Alice in Chains. That's literally the album that I was going to do next if you didn't. (laughs) So... There you go. Uh, September 29th, 1992 will be the uh, 30th anniversary of that album. I just posted about the box set that they're going to be releasing for that um, coming up soon. And it just feels appropriate to, if we're going to talk about Alice in Chains, probably to make it that album and to make it this time that we're talking about it. So, it, uh, you know, for those that were waiting for another hair metal pick, like, you know, don't worry. There's there's still plenty more. <laughs> there's plenty more in the catalog to, <laughs> to talk about. But I think um, it feels like the right time for us to be talking about Alice in Chains. That was uh, literally like on my list. That was going to be my pick for the next episode if you'd picked something else. Uh, well, I'm glad. So now I've got to try and come up with something else <laughs> for, for the, yeah, the episode there you after. Go. but yeah no fantastic yeah i can't wait to talk about that as you say lots of people have been waiting for us to talk about it mainly because you and i reference it a lot and keep saying that we're going to talk about it and we haven't got around to it before now so i'm glad that we finally are me too all right what more is there to say this has been a fantastic episode i'm like i say i wouldn't be surprised if it's our longest ever when i cut the music in <laughs> but thank you for listening everyone and keep thrashing Take care, everybody. Well, hang on, make sure I've got the actual album name up right. <laughs> <laughs> Ready? Go for it.